Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the final 2021 episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. It actually uh, will, will air in 2022, of course, but... This is the second of our two-parter uh, in memoriam special where we commemorate the lives and legacies of some of those sports figures who passed away in the year 2021. I, of course, am Dan Newman, and I, of course, am joined by Andrew Newman, my co-host and brother. Andrew, how are you doing today? Doing all right, Dan. It's, uh, as we record this, it's a little afternoon on uh, New Year's Day, so or New Year's Eve, rather. So we're headed towards uh, the end. We're in the waning hours of 2021. We are, and we sort of, um, it's appropriate, like I said, even though this will not air until some point in January, it's appropriate that we do this today because it provides us an opportunity to, to make sure we didn't miss anybody. Last year when we did this, we recorded what we thought would be our last episode right around Christmas, and then there ended up being a few more individuals who passed away. So this will enable us, unless somebody happens to, to to pass away in the next 12 hours or so, we this will enable us to have the completion needed for, for this type of episode. So we always enjoy this. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed part one, which posted a few weeks ago, and this will, uh, this will be episode two. You'll hear some more of our friends and colleagues from the sports history network pop up intermittently to talk about some folks uh, that they wanted to hop on and discuss with us. And then Andrew and I will fill in the gaps and take you through the rest. So with that, Andrew, did you have anything to add before we got started? No, I think we're good to, uh, to continue down the line. All right. Well, why don't we start then uh, with the, the some, our first entry this year in the world of ice hockey and talk about Tony Esposito, who was born in 1943 and died on August 10th. Esposito played 16 seasons in the National Hockey League, 15 of those for the Chicago Blackhawks, a six-time All-Star and three-time Vizina Trophy winner. Esposito was the brother of fellow Hall of Famer Phil Esposito. He was, uh, he's considered one of the, the pioneers of the really the only style of goaltending you see these days, which is the butterfly style. You know, if you see old uh, clips of goaltending, generally the guys are standing almost straight up. If you see clips from the 60s and things like that, where it's, you know, kind of a, a crouch, but not not seriously, whereas opposed to when you see now guys are all very low. They, you know, drop down onto the ice much more frequently. And it was a gradual evolution, but Esposito is seen as one of those, uh, 
one of the the leaders of that movement. He had 15 shutouts in 1970, and he won the Calder Trophy, which is for the Rookie of the Year. Like baseball, hockey, you're not considered a rookie until you hit a certain number of games. And he actually came up to the NHL in 68-69. Was that the last year of the the original six, 68-69? No, by then they had expanded, I believe. They had expanded a few years before that. Okay. The seven that they okay. with that because there was it went from six to twelve and then there was more expansion in the late you know in the early seventies mm-hmm. but um I'm pretty sure it was like sixty seven I can check that but they doubled the size of the league then so Esposito comes up in his first year appearing in the NHL he plays thirteen games for the Montreal Canadiens who go on to win the Stanley Cup that year. And then he is, I believe, traded to the Blackhawks after that season. And so he does not appear in the postseason at all for, uh, yeah, he, oh, he actually is a, yeah, he's, he's claimed uh, in the intra-league draft by the Blackhawks from the Canadians. I don't know the specifics of what that draft was all about, but he goes on to play. He joins a Blackhawk team that had already had two legendary skaters in Bobby Hull and Stan Makita, but they'd not been very good. They'd finished in sixth, sixth place the year before. But with Esposito, they sort of they never managed to win a Stanley Cup, but I, they make it to a couple of cup finals. And he sort of is seen as somebody who kind of catapults them into contendership for years to come. Yeah, they they lost the the cup finals in 71 and 73. Uh 71 it actually went to 7 games. So he was against in that series and specifically in game 7 against Ken Dryden, the famous Montreal goalie who for very casual fans know him as he was the other guy in the booth with Al Michaels during the Miracle on Ice game. But um that he's was- the reason why Esposito can't crack the Canadiens lineup. Oh yeah yeah yeah. So yeah, they lost 3 to 2 in that game and they actually lost game six and seven in that series to lose the Stanley cup, but um, probably the, the best team that Esposito was on brothers with Phil Esposito, great uh, player for the Boston Bruins. And then later the New York Rangers, I mentioned before the Blackhawks in 68 and 69 had not been very good. They'd missed the playoffs for the first time in a decade. And then the following year, they catapult themselves back up into contendership and the coach uh, Billy Ray says about Esposito if I had to pick a key it would be Esposito he has given us the big save the save that gives you a lift so many times you get that big save and bang you go right down to their end and put the puck in the net and Bobby Orr who is certainly no uh, certainly an expert on goaltenders says the following about Esposito he said he looks like hell out there the guy does everything wrong. He gives us shooters all kinds of openings and he doesn't play the angles very well. Hell, he doesn't even keep his legs together, giving you big holes to shoot at, but it works. And so he goes on to lead the Blackhawks for the 70s and into the 80s and retires and along with his brother is enshrined in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And uh, one sort of bit of pop culture reference for Tony Esposito, his Jersey 
is the one that Garth is wearing in Wayne's World during the famous street hockey scene in the movie where they game on and then they move because of the car and they move mm-hmm. the goal off the, off the road. That was the Jersey that Garth is wearing as the goalie in that scene. You know, I didn't know that. I knew that the restaurant they ate at was called Stan Makita's, which is another black Hawk, obviously, but I didn't know that that was Tony Esposito's Jersey that he was wearing. I didn't know that either until I, they're both wearing like red Blackhawks jerseys. I don't know what Jersey uh, Wayne is wearing, but uh that's I just came across that while I was reading the some information on uh, Tony Esposito. And we're not really big hockey fans compared to some of the other sports. And as we've mentioned before, our knowledge of that compared to football, baseball, basketball, maybe even boxing. Hockey's not nearly as much, but I feel like Chicago, the Blackhawks, they do have a, you know, they have a hockey tradition. I think it's sort of been eclipsed by the Bears and the Bulls and the Cubs, but. Blackhawk hockey is it's a pretty big deal in Chicago. Yeah, well, they, um, you know, they had a really good, good run about in the last 10 years or so. They won three Stanley Cups in the 20 teens. There was a when they won the first one, I remember reading about there had just been sort of some catastrophic things that happened from an organizational standpoint in the 60s and 70s and 80s that really caused them to lose relevance. I think they were still not on local TV until like the late nineties due to some pissing contest, I guess I'll say between the (laughs) ownership and the TV network or the local cable network or whatever. There was just, there was so many like different things. And obviously that coincided with the the bulls becoming a, a national brand an international brand and, you know, and all of that. So yeah, they certainly did slip a little, but if you think about it there, it's historically inaccurate to refer to the original six, but that is a, a, you know, a thing that gets thrown around. There's only six of those, obviously. So if you're one of those, you're you have a better hockey tradition than pretty much almost everybody else, or at least a longer one. So, you know, it was good to see them win uh, a couple of cups in the last decade or so. All right. Why don't we stay in the Midwest, but move on to baseball? And do you want to tell us about our next honoree? Sure. Uh, Bill Freehan. Uh, born in 1941, died on August 19th. Freehan played his entire 15-year career as a catcher for the Detroit Tigers, making 11 All-Star games and winning five gold gloves. Freehan was the starting catcher on the Detroit Tigers' 1968 World Championship team. That same year, he caught for Denny McLean, the last 30-game win, winner in Major League history. 11 All-Star appearances, plays a very long time, catches 100-some-odd games uh, into his 30s, with the Tigers, if you look, I, I don't know, did he ever play any position? I guess he played a little bit of first base later in his career, but even into the 70s, he is catching, you know, over 100 games, you know, several years in a row. We mentioned it. He is the catcher for the last pitcher in Major League history to win. 30 games with Denny McLean in 1968. And that is, I would have to say, barring a major shift in baseball, that's probably the last pitcher we'll ever see win 30 games. So there's, he's part of a piece of history right there. Yeah. And he's actually got a, with another pitcher on that staff, he's got a, uh, another record that could prove difficult to break all time. You know what that is? I do not. Him and Mickey Lolich from 1963 to he caught Mickey Lolich 
324 games from 1963 to 1975. Uh, and that is the most that any pitcher catcher starting pitcher catcher combination has ever done. They're, they're the battery with the most all time combined starts. 324, you said 324. Yeah. Yeah. That that's going to be, you figure even at 30 starts, that's 10 or 11 seasons. So. When you look at yeah, so the next few are three sixteen is Warren Spahn and Del Crandall from nineteen forty nine to nineteen sixty three. Number three is Red Faber and Ray Shock from the nineteen fourteen to nineteen twenty six White Sox. I'll just go through five. Four is Drysdale and Roseboro from fifty seven to sixty seven, and six, five is Red Ruffing from nineteen thirty to nineteen forty six. So these are not recent numbers you know the the only one in the top actually number nine is glavin and javi lopez uh-huh. four to oh two that's the only one that's even somewhat recent and even that ended 20 years ago and what's so, that number it's 248 oh, so, okay so they're a little closer but still that's probably another three seasons worth yeah and i don't think they're gonna get there <laughs> the the 68 tiger first of all the 68 season there's a book that's been written about that season called the year of the pitcher that was sort of the the most famous season of major league pitching in recent baseball history, whether it was Bob Gibson with a 1.12 ERA for the Cardinals. We talked about McLean and Lolich. We talked about, um, you can talk about Marischal. You can talk about Don Drysdale. You can talk about Tom Seaver and freehand as the catcher for two really, really good pitchers in Lolich and McLean is an integral part of that. I think 1968, I think that was the year that um, I think it was Carl Yastrzemski won the batting title with a 301 average. I'm just going to verify that real quickly because that was, that was the worst year for offense and the best year for pitching. Yep. Yastrzemski wins the batting title with a 301 batting average. Crazy to think about either before or since. So that is the year of the pitcher and he is, perhaps the best catcher in the year of the pitcher. He catches three complete game victories by Mickey Lolich in the 68 world series. That same year, he caught 155 regular season games and he is the runner up uh, for American league MVP to McLean that same year in 68, he posted career highs and homers, RBIs and runs scored. He is when you see them name the all time catching the all-time lineup for the Tigers. He is almost always listed as the catcher for the all-time Tigers. Is probably his most famous play. He first of all he catches the final out of the '68 World Series in Game Seven against the Cardinals, and there's a famous picture of him being embraced by uh, by Mickey Lolich out on the mound when Lolich has just thrown his third complete game. And this is I get this information from his obituary. Game five. Cardinals are leading the game three to two. They're leading the series three to one. And there's a single by Julian Javier and Lou Brock, one of the best uh, run scorers, best base runners of all time, tries to score standing up. But uh, the left fielder, Willie Horton, makes a perfect throw to Freeman, and uh, Freeman kind of blocks the plate with his body, tags out Brock. And a lot of people view that as the turning point of the 1968 World Series. He's from Detroit, which we've talked about this occasionally with other guys. There is something kind of special about a guy who does it and then plays his whole career 
brings a championship home to his hometown team. Yeah. And then he was involved with the organization for a long time after that, too. He was a was he a broadcaster for a long time, I believe. I think that's right. Doesn't really get a lot of Hall of Fame love. He's on the ballot in 1982 and he only gets one half of one percent in the voting. There's a book by Jay Jaffe, which is called Cooperstown Casebook, where he kind of ranks at every position guys who he thinks should be in the Hall of Fame, guys who he thinks shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I'll try and put it in the show notes. And I just want to see where he ranks free. And he ranks free and as the 14th best catcher of all time. He says that if you look at the numbers, the offensive numbers kind of normalized, he's almost on like a Mike Piazza level in the late sixties, all-star game starter every year from 1966 to 1972. And I don't know when we'll do a hall of fame episode before, uh, before too long here. Um, I don't know which veterans committee meets next year, whether it would be the one that he would be eligible for, but it's certainly worth considering his hall of fame candidacy. Jaffe ranks him ahead of guys like Ernie Lombardi, Roy Campanella, Ray Schalk, all of whom are in the Hall of Fame. So maybe somebody who, like a lot of guys, will get a second look for the Hall of Fame once he's passed away. should also point out he was uh, before the Tigers. He went to the University of Michigan and was a linebacker as uh, on the football team as well as a catcher on the baseball team. And this also says he's got the all-time Big Ten batting record of 585 in 1961. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and that was before the days of aluminum bats, too, I would imagine. So it's particularly yeah. impressive. Yes. All right. So why don't we return to the NHL realm and we'll talk about Rod Gilbert, uh, who passed away on August 19th, known as Mr. Ranger. Gilbert is one of the most beloved players in New York Rangers history. He is first all time in franchise history in both goals and points. And was the first Ranger to have his number retired by the team. This is a guy you just kind of hear about a lot when you talk about New York sports history. Yeah. And his, his passing got a lot of local coverage, which sounds obvious, but you know, this is New York. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of different teams. The Rangers are obviously the biggest hockey team, but that, doesn't put them super high up in the pecking order from a media standpoint in this in the New York uh, media market, but he's considered sort of Mr. Ranger. I'm reading the New York Post article from when he passed back in September, and the first quote is actually from Joe Namath saying, I loved him. He was the most sincere, wonderful gentleman. He had respect for everyone. I got to meet and spend time with some special people when I knew was in New York, and Rod was just one of the best they were contemporaries. Jobert was with the uh, the Rangers, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s at the same time that uh, Namath was making headlines and winning a championship with the Jets. A couple of interesting things about Jobert. One, you know, in, in that era, he's French Canadian. He's from, I believe, right from Montreal, but he's definitely from the province of Quebec. Yeah, he's born in Montreal, Canada. For him to end up anywhere else but the Canadians at Good that point. time is pretty surprising. So I'm not sure if they, you know, given the rules at the time, I'm not sure if maybe they passed on them or just weren't interested in them. The other thing I wanted to point out with him, so he was born in 1941. He had spinal fusion surgery two different times in that era, and it didn't end his career. Jeez. Um, 
he played for three seasons for the, I'm not going to pronounce this right, but the Gulf Biltmore Mad Hatters of the Ontario Hockey League from 1957 to 1960. In his final year with the team, he slipped on some garbage strewn on the ice and fell back into the boards, breaking a vertebra in his back and temporarily paralyzing him. Corrective surgery went awry, which is, you know, that's never how you want your surgery to go. Doctors feared amputation would be necessary. He survived. Also, again, had a second 65, 66. He went through a second spinal fusion operation. So this guy had two spinal fusion operations, which are very risky these days. And that's one of the big things surrounding uh, Jack Eichel getting traded from the Sabres was that he did not want to undergo spinal fusion surgery that, that the team wanted him to. The fact that he had two of them 60 years ago or 50 years ago and it was successful and he continued to play at a high level is pretty insane as well. First of all, I'm well familiar with the Jack Eichel saga. Second of all, yeah, no, definitely. Absolutely. Only one. I think it's 71 72 is the one year that they make it to the cup finals and they lose to the Bobby Orr, uh, Phil Esposito Bruins teams in seven games or six games, I should say. And then. I think they make it back the Rangers the year after he retires. He kind of retires in a little bit of a contract dispute with ownership and leaves the team. They make it back to the cup finals that year. Only a two-time all-star, which I I don't presume to, presume to really know what hockey all-stars appearances mean, especially back in the 70s. But for a guy who's considered such a legend of his team, you'd think maybe he would have made a couple more all-star teams. So I don't know exactly what happened there. And then the other thing I would mention is you hear him kind of thrown about as the best New York athlete never to win a title. Hmm. I think during COVID, when the sports were shut down, yeah. that was one that was one of the debates. And, you know, I loved those. I didn't love the fact that short sports were shut down, but I love some of these sort of New York debates and sports stuff. And that was one of the ones I remember. I think it was on the Michael K show on ESPN radio and yeah. Dom LaGreca, who's uh, a huge hockey guy. Who's the co-host of the Michael K show. He kind of was pushing Rod Gilbert as the guy who maybe was the best New York athlete never to win a title. Yeah. And there's certainly, it was, it was, he's still, he's the leading point scorer and goal scorer in Rangers history which again, when you think about how long he's been retired for, so yeah, a guy who really does loom large and is sort of uh, not forgotten because he's definitely not forgotten, but like maybe a little underappreciated, not from a hockey standpoint, but just some sort of a importance to New York sports lore. And he was also a part along with the Esposito brothers and Bobby Orr and a couple of other guys in something that was known as the summit series in 1972. And in a way it's kind of the miracle on ice before the miracle on ice. And it's a bunch of Canadian hockey players played an eight game series against the USSR four games in Canada, and then four games in the Soviet union. And uh, the Canadian team wins four of the eight games. Soviets win three and they tie one and sort of even more impressively, the, Canadians win six, seven, and eight, the last three games, all in Russia, all by a single goal. And it's, you know, though that's kind of considered like it is in some ways, maybe not quite as 
monumental or as politically important, but that in some ways is considered in Canada the way Americans consider the miracle on ice eight years later, the this this great victory over a seemingly invincible Soviet hockey team. Yeah, there's this sort of mythology around the miracle on ice that, you know, I think for the most part does it justice, but sort of that, oh, the Soviets had not lost a hockey game to anyone since 1960 when the U.S. beat them in 1980. And it's like, yeah, they would be even sometimes with some of these series, but like the NHL All-Stars beat them a fair amount, too. That uh, that does definitely need to be included on it for him. All right. Why don't we move on and uh, into football? And Andrew, you can tell us about our next guy. Sure. Sam Bam Cunningham, born in 1950, passed away on September 7th. An All-American fullback at the University of Southern California, Cunningham is the all-time leading rusher in New England Patriots history. He made the Pro Bowl in 1978, the same year the Patriots set a league record for team rushing yards as a team, which is the best way to set a record for team rushing yards. He is the older brother of NFL quarterback Randall Cunningham. Let's start with the Patriots stuff, and then I'll go back, and we'll talk about the USC stuff. Is that well, the first thing I want to talk about is just how I was shocked when I saw that he was Randall Cunningham's brother. I think there's like an 18-year age difference or something like that. It would almost have to be. Yeah, you said Sam Cunningham was born in 1950. Yeah, and Randall Cunningham didn't debut in the NFL until the mid-80s, so he He was was well... 63, so... So a 13-year age difference, so... It's a lot, but not... It it just seems like... Because also, at least for me, it's like, when I think of Sam Cunningham, I think of the early 70s, and when I think of Randall Cunningham, I think of at best the early 90s and in a lot of ways the late 90s so you're talking about a guy who helped integrate college football and a guy who threw to randy moss and those two things just don't seem yeah that's a good point they don't seem like they're in the uh they're in the same realm yeah he um he's a patriots legend might be a little bit of an overstatement the patriots were basically bad for the better part of 40 years from 1960 when they came into the afl until the Belichick years, you know, they have a few, they win a, they go to a couple AFL title games very early on. And then they have that Super Bowl in 85, they have the Super Bowl in 96 with Parcells and Cunningham is one of the bright spots during one of the down periods for the Patriots in the 1970s. This is when, you know, they're bad and they're, they're playing out in Foxborough in an old stadium, a stadium that was kind of old the minute they even built it and the games aren't on TV. I've talked to people who've said, you know, I, I, I couldn't be a Patriots fan growing up, even though I grew up in Massachusetts because the games were never on TV. He's the all time leading rusher in Patriots history. He's the only appears in two playoff games, loses them both in 76 and 78. But I think owing at least in part to the way the game has changed and how sort of focusing on a single running back was much more of a, much more of a common practice in those days. He, he remains the most, the leading rusher in, in new England Patriots history has sort of an interesting beginning to his career in the NFL in 1973, the Patriots have three draft picks in the first 20 um, first 20 picks. And Cunningham is the middle one of those picks. The other two are very noteworthy for different reasons. The number four overall pick is John Hanna, who's the guard who's 
many consider to be the best offensive guard in NFL history. And then Cunningham goes 11. And then in 19, the 19th pick is a wide receiver by the name of Daryl Stingley, who is well known for being, I, I think the first, if not one of the first players who was ever uh, unfortunately paralyzed during an NFL game on a hit by Jack Tatum of the Oakland Raiders. Uh, so, and um, it's funny, we, I want to put a pin in something about Daryl Stingley that we'll talk about at the very end of this episode. So he's part of kind of an interesting time in Patriots history, but he's good to somewhat good NFL player only makes one pro bowl. His true legacy, I think is probably during his time at USC for a couple of reasons. So when people say Sam Cunningham, for the most part, you know, outside of the context, I guess, of the Patriots, but for the most part, what they're talking about is the a game from his freshman year of college, or I guess would have been his sophomore year, his first college game. Because uh, freshmen weren't eligible to play varsity in those days. Comes back into this story. At USC, he was a USC Trojan in the, the height of the John McKay era. Their first game that year, they went to Tuscaloosa and played the Bear Bryant Alabama Crimson Tide with John Hanna on the team. And this was the first time that a fully integrated team had played at Alabama. USC was, you know, had a black quarterback, black running backs, you know, was a heavily successful, but also a very African-American heavy team, as you would expect at the time. And Sam Cunningham had a really good game. He only had 12 carries, but he had 12 carries for 135 yards and two touchdowns. USC beat the crap out of Alabama, who was kind of in the middle of a rebuild. They had gone six and five the year before. And after the game, Bear Bryant ran into Sam Cunningham in the locker or in the tunnel, going back to the locker rooms and just shook his hand and said, nice game and, you know, congratulated him. That's the nuts and bolts of the story itself. Almost everything else surrounding it is myth-making, some with an agenda and some with not. So, yes, there were players who a lot of players on the USC team were from the South, and some of them were like, didn't know what kind of environment they'd be walking into. And they, a couple of guys bought knives, and there was even a report that somebody bought a gun. More stark story there is that you could bring a gun on an airplane back then. But in the years intervening and how I always heard the story was, Oh, after the game, bear Bryant brought Sam Cunningham into his locker room and put him up on a stool and told his team fellas, this is what a ball player looks like. Didn't happen. Didn't come close to happening. There's also the thought that bear Bryant did this with the intention of shocking people in Alabama into being willing to integrate athletic team, specifically their football team. And there was some truth to them softening their stance on that when they saw what a guy like Cunningham could do for their team. Alabama already had a few black freshmen on their roster that year. Walk-ons and things like that. Walk-ons, and they actually had a scholarship black player on the team at this point, but he was a freshman, so he was ineligible to play. So there is no doubt that this was an important milestone for integrating what at the time, maybe them in Notre Dame was probably the biggest football program in the country and certainly the biggest Southern football program in the country. But it's just, again, it's like anything where it gets, there's a very good documentary. It's not HBO. I want to say it was Showtime. It's called Against the Tide. I think it's Tom Selleck is the narrator. 
And it does a very good job of telling the story, but sort of spinning out a lot of the things I'm just talking about. Some of that was just your standard sports myth making. And then the last thing I'll say, there was also a quote that basically said that people for years would say that Sam Cunningham did more to integrate Alabama in 60 minutes that night than Martin Luther King had accomplished in 20 years. That quote made the rounds for a long time. And in this documentary, they tell a good point. They say that quote's not meant to be complimentary to Sam Cunningham. It's meant to be insulting to Martin Luther King. So again, a lot of this stuff, you just have to separate what happened from what didn't happen and recognize, yeah, this was a significant moment when a fully integrated team went down to Tuscaloosa, Alabama and beat the crap out of Alabama. But everything you've heard is not accurate. Yeah, there tends to be more than one factor at play with any of these things at one time. It's not like, okay, Sam Cunningham came down and the next day Alabama decided to integrate its football program. There's always a lot of different things going on at once. The other thing I would mention is that in the very first segment of this two-parter, I talked to George Bazika about the uh, legendary Hall of Fame running back Floyd Little, who passed away. And one of the things that George and I discuss is discussed, I should say, is the tradition of running backs at Syracuse. And Cunningham at USC kind of has a similar story because he's sort of one in a line of great USC running backs from what kind of starts in a lot of ways with OJ Simpson and then Cunningham who was an all American in 1972. And then a few years later after that, you get Marcus Allen and then you years later, you get Reggie Bush. And so he is, it's kind of like playing center field for the Yankees being a star running back for USC. There's a lineage there that matters historically. And that was, uh, and he's certainly a a key aspect of that. And um, that list is a little, it's tough to tell that full story these days, but uh, because that one big piece in there is the elephant in the room. But You mean OJ? Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to do one of these for him one day and in memoriam when he passes away. It's going to be, it's going to be. Yeah, that'll be interesting. (laughs) Tells me he's got another 30 years left in him. He looks pretty uh, It's pretty sprightly. Okay, next up, we have Mick Tinglehoff, a Hall of Fame center for the Minnesota Vikings. Mick Tinglehoff was born in 1940 and passed away on September the 11th. A seven-time All-Pro at center for the Minnesota Vikings. Tinglehoff played in four Super Bowls with the team from 1969 to 1976 and was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2015, his 32nd year of eligibility. And I am pleased to have back with me the incoming president of the Professional Football Researchers Association, the PFRA, George Bozica. George, thanks so much for joining us again to talk about Mick Tinglehoff. Thanks, Dan. This is probably of all the of all the people maybe possibly of the ones that you and I speak about and even of the ones that we do on this whole show, this whole in memoriam episode, you don't hear a lot about centers. So what can you tell us about Mick Tinglehoff? Cause he obviously is one of the all time greats at his position. He, w- he really was. I mean, uh, I, I think too, the thing about Mick Tinglehoff is that's just the name for a football player. I mean, yeah. Mick, 
Inglehop. It's like Dick <laughs> Budkus. You know, I mean, you know, that some people are born with a name that just says football. He was born in 1940 in Lexington, Nebraska, played at the University of Nebraska as a linebacker and a center. Actually, it looked like he was actually going to be a linebacker, but he ended up being a center his whole career. He was actually an undrafted free agent that uh, went with the Vikings. He was there from 62 to 78. And I think the the Big things to remember about McTinglehoff was that he was a he was a bit of an Iron Man. He started 240, you know, straight games, regular season games, and if you count the playoffs, 259, you know, for the Vikings. Uh, a six-time Pro Bowler, perennial All-Pro during his peak years from 1964 to 1970. Uh, he was called by some of his players and coaches the anchor or the catalyst for those teams. Uh, Bud Grant particularly referred to him as the catalyst. He was small by today's standards, 6'2", 237 pounds. But Fran Tarkington, who was his best friend, roommate, soulmate, called him Quick Mick. Even though he was smallish, he had great speed. Uh, He was a tremendous blocker. And his technique was just unbelievable. You know, uh, some of his contemporaries like, you know, Jim Marshall, who was on the Vikings, he was sort of the the anchor of their defense back then. And guys like Dave Robinson, who played linebacker for the Packers, the Great Lombardi Packer teams, and Dick Butkus himself, you know, referred to him as, you know, one of the toughest uh, centers that they faced. He had a reputation as, you know, being sort of the, the center and the anchor of, you know, those great Vikings teams. During the time he was there with Bud Grant as a coach, uh, as you said, four Super Bowls, 10 division titles. He was inducted into the Vikings Ring of Honor in 2001. And finally, as you said, after waiting, you know, the senior, uh, as a senior, uh, finally made it into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2015. You know, sadly, one of the things I really remember about his induction is I mentioned Fran Tarkington. And Fran Tarkington actually had two tours of duty with the Vikings. He was with the Vikings and he went to the Giants and then he came back to the Vikings for, you know, three Super Bowl runs. And as I said, I, and I didn't even realize this because Fran Tarkington actually spoke for Mick at his hall of fame induction because Mick was suffering from Alzheimer's. And I thought it was one of the most emotional acceptances that I've ever seen in, in, you know, the many years, you know, some of the players really get emotional, but Fran Tarkington just, you know, showed a different side of, but just how emotional he got for a person that he said he referred to as his soulmate. He said, mix a man of little words, but a lot of action. And I think that says a lot. And when he said that, you know, he teared up and, you know, it was, it was, I thought a really touching moment. You know, I, I know some people, you know, get into these long-winded speeches like Ray Lewis made a couple of years ago. And that that's sort of a, a bit of a turnoff for me. But the raw emotion that somebody like Fran Tarkenden shows when he was there to present and speak for Mick Tingloff, I think is is something about what maybe pro football is all about from, you know, that that level. You know, and I I, I think that's much more meaningful than some of these, you know, other I guess I I guess I'm I'm showing I'm a bit of an old school uh, curmudgeon here, but uh yeah it, it was a touching moment well when you're when you're a guest on a show called hello old sports on a network yeah. called the sports history network it's no problem to be a curmudgeon um <laughs> and it's, it's interesting it, it, we've, we've talked about this andrew and i in different contexts with various sports but especially with football and offensive linemen it's very hard to quantify and it's even harder to quantify then mm-hmm. than it is now 
and there's a few different things you can look at. You can look at durability, which mm-hmm. Tinglehoff obviously has. You can look at winning, which they didn't win the big prize, but they won four NFC championships in a, you know, what a basically a 10 year period. First one mm-hmm. in 69, second one in 76. So yeah, even less than, even less than 10 years. And then you can look at how they're appreciated and spoken about by their teammates and those who play around them. You know, Terry Bradshaw always spoke amazingly of Mike Webster. Mm-hmm. Vince Lombardi said that Forrest Gregg was the best football player that he ever coached. And you see it similarly, Tarkenton, who had two Hall of Fame offensive linemen with sort of a very similar profile when it came to longevity and durability. The tackle, Ron Yeri, was another great Hall of Famer for the Minnesota Vikings. So I think that's kind of what you're left with mm-hmm. with a guy like Mick Tinglehoff. That and the fact, and this was mentioned in the Coffin Corner, which is the official magazine of the Professional Football Researchers Association, of which George is the incoming president. They mentioned the fact that he has to, um, that he had to block Dick Butkus, Ray Nitschke, Joe Schmidt of the Lions, all Hall of Famers in their own right. So, the reputation of those who spoke about him, I think, speaks really well to him. Tinglehoff, we mentioned that it took him a long time to get into the Hall of Fame, 32 years. And I can kind of speak to this now as a, a sports amateur sports historian. There are always these guys who are not in the Halls of Fame of their specific sport that are greats that for whatever reason you, you you sort of focus on them and think, I want this person to be in the hall of fame. And it, you know, for me, I didn't do anything about it, but it just became something that you always hope for. And the two that I always had were Jerry Kramer in football and Gil Hodges in baseball. And yes. as of about a week ago, they've both yeah. gotten in. So yeah. I'm thrilled. Um, yeah. Yeah. Historically thrilled, but one of the and Tinglehoff, I think, for I'm sure for a lot of Vikings fans with 32 years, was another one of those guys. One of the things that PFRA does is they put out this uh, annually something called the Hall of Very Good, which is players who are sort of threshold Hall of Famers mm-hmm. that maybe George could just explain a little bit about the Hall of Very Good, because I think it's one of the coolest things that PFRA does. Yeah, the the um, the PFRA started the Hall of Very Good in 2002, and it's to honor outstanding players and coaches not in the Hall of Fame. Two Hall of Famers that that passed in 2021, Mick Tinglehoff and Floyd Little, are both members of the Hall of Very Good. Tinglehoff was inducted in 2003, and Little in 2005. And how it's done every year is is that PFRA members are permitted to nominate you know names of players and coaches. And then uh, the committee that that basically responsible for the Hall of Very Good within the organization then basically reviews the nominations and then they basically present a slate to members to vote. And then there's a time frame, a deadline for voting. And then after that time frame, every year there's a, a new class that's named to the Hall of Very Good. 
and a number of the of the people that are in the Hall of Very Good have gone on then to actually be inducted into the Hall of Fame. This year's class was just announced recently, and it, it's a good class. John Nyland, uh, Abe Woodson, Stanley Morgan, Russ Francis, Bob Vogel, who spoke at our PFRA convention this year and was really well received. He was great. Him. He was absolutely great. Yeah, yeah he was with the uh, he was uh, Ohio State with uh, Woody Hayes and then played for the great Colts teams with Johnny Unitas and Don Chula uh, during the sixties, Mike Ken, Clark Shaughnessy, who he was one of the the names that I nominated myself, you know, landmark coach uh, of the uh, T formation, uh, Bill Stanfield and uh, Grady Alderman, another Viking and Tony Latone. So yeah, this is a, another sort of great thing that the PFRA does. And uh you know, it's a great organization. I think it's good that we honor these people that, you know, maybe have not made it into the Hall of Fame, but you know, do have a great pedigree in the NFL. You know, there's there's been a number of, of you know, as, as it says, very good players in the NFL, you know, mm-hmm. that maybe aren't quite at the top. I, I think it's always comical how many people will on Facebook or others will say, well, he should be in the Hall of Fame or oh, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Well, not everybody can make the Hall of Fame, but there are a lot of great players that are maybe just a little bit below that that threshold. And, you know, obviously we think of our favorite players and people that we were fond of and people that maybe had, you know, sometimes it's a matter of longevity. Maybe they only had a couple of good years or cut short for some reason. But yeah, so I think it's a great way to honor some of these players and coaches that, that you know, have not made the Hall of Fame. But I think it's always refreshing to find that some of them do finally get to that, you know, pinnacle. And correct me if I'm wrong, but don't, don't we, don't the PFRA also, they, they occasionally will officially endorse a candidate for the hall of fame. Is that right? Yeah. We used to do it a little bit more in the past, but yeah, occasionally we do do that. So yeah, another, another really cool thing. And I think like George said, it's a, it's a way of honoring these guys that are second tier and just, you know, you look at the list, obviously some of them are maybe hall of fame worthy and, you know, several have gotten into the hall of fame, but there are also a number and I, I don't want to, don't want to pick on anybody here, but you know, there are names here and you can check this out on the PFR way PFRA website who I don't think would be anybody's idea of a hall of famer, but they're also not somebody who should just be lost to the, sort of the ash bin of history so it's another another level of commemoration which i think is good definitely george thank you so much mick tinglehoff was one of the ones who was lucky enough to be a member of both the hall of very good and the pro football hall of fame and was able to get in in his lifetime even if it was maybe much later than it should have been george bozica incoming president of the pro football resources association we'll hear from him one more time during the course of the episode but george thanks so much for joining us Thanks again. I think I'm up next and I am going to talk about Eddie Robinson, who was born in 1920 and passed away on October 4th. The oldest living baseball player at the time of his death, Robinson played for seven of the eight American League teams in existence during his major league career. Robinson was a four-time All-Star and won the 1948 World Series with the Cleveland Indians He later appeared in the 1955 World Series for the New York Yankees. I just felt like Eddie Robinson needed to be in for a couple of reasons. First of all, the longevity is amazing. And this is a guy who, up until almost right when he died, was quote-unquote active 
in, you know, in the baseball community. I remember a couple of years ago, I don't know if it was one of the old timers days that I was at, but he was at a Yankee old timers day, you know, within the last five or six years. And he also had a podcast. Oh, wow. I didn't know he, that. He didn't host it on his own. He, I'm sure he didn't edit it in audacity like I do, but he was a guy who about a year ago, he, and I don't know if it was a family member or a family friend or something, he had a podcast, you know, a 20 minute, every couple of week podcast where he would talk about his memories of, you know, Bob Feller and Mickey Mantle and all this stuff. He was involved with baseball all the way until 2004. He was actually a scout. I believe it was for the Red Sox up until 2004. So he was, he was a guy, he was a baseball lifer and, you know, God, seven out of eight American league teams is just crazy. And in those days, it's funny to think because unlike today where there's not much of a difference, you look sometimes at some of these players and they tended to be either American league guys or national league guys. And I don't know if some of that was the structure of how you'd go about signing players was you had to clear waivers from every team in your league before you could sign with the other league. So it's just crazy. You think about seven teams in one league and he didn't play a single game for any of the eight teams in the other league. Yeah. He was the oldest living player on like a bunch of different teams before he passed away. He was the <laughs> last living player for the 1948 Indians championship team. It said here he was actually at game six of the 2016 World Series between the Cubs and the Indians. And up until his passing, he had been for a year and a half or so, he'd been the oldest living professional baseball player. So yeah, a guy who's, um, you know, it's interesting that he played for the Yankees for a couple of seasons in that era and managed to not win a championship because he just happened to hit them at the right time there where he didn't, he was there all of 54 and 55. He was there in 54 and then was there in 55. He plays, plays quite a bit in the 55 Mm -hmm. world series uh, against the Brooklyn Dodgers. The one time that the Dodgers beat the Yankees and he actually, I want to look up his numbers. I think he's got decent numbers for the Yankees in 55. I was reading that he had, he started the, season in 55 some of the other first basemen were hurt and this was a Casey Stengel year so of course it was platooning literally left and right but I read somewhere that I think he had like 15 home runs to start off the season for the Yankees in 1955 let me just look up right here um 88 games he hits 16 home runs okay so he starts a lot better than he finishes he kind of tapers off at the end and the Yankees had first base was one of those positions for the Yankees throughout the fifties where they really didn't have a true regular. It was Tommy Henrik early on. And then you had Joe Collins and a little bit of Johnny Mize, who was kind of a hall of famer, kind of like the David Ortiz of his day, a much better offensive player than he was a defensive first baseman, Johnny Mize. And then Joe Collins a little bit. Moose Scourin kind of comes along in the mid fifties and lasts on the team until the sixties. And so in fact, the reason why they trade Robinson in 56 is because Moose Scourin is really sort of grabbing and claiming the first base position for himself. But in that kind of interregnum period in 55, and I think Scourin might've been hurt for part of 55 or something like that. Robinson is one of the guys that goes back and forth as well as the everyday first baseman with some others with the Yankees in that 55 season, 
his best years were probably those years with the Indians, the, the 1948 Indians infield, which is Robinson, Joe Gordon at second base, who's a Hall of Famer, Lou Boudreau, who's the player manager at shortstop, who's another Hall of Famer, and then Ken Keltner at third base. Four starting infielders finished the year with a total of 432 RBIs. That's not the record. The 34 Tigers drove in 462 runs, but still, uh, and the um, the 31 Yankees drove in 441 runs. But so there are some are some other teams that are close. But this 48 Indians team with two Hall of Famers, uh, perennial All Star and Robinson, and then Ken Keltner, who was a decent enough player in his own right, they sort of rank up there. It's the first integrated team to ever win a world series. It's the last Cleveland Indian team to ever win a world series. And so he was part of a lot of historic teams, as you kind of alluded to during his long career. Yep. Absolutely. Just kind of a, a a joint through the American league through his entire career. All right, we're going to stay in the baseball realm, and why don't you uh, read our next guy? Sure. Jerry Remy, born in 1952, died on October 30th. Remy played 10 years at second base for the Angels and Red Sox with his best year coming in 1978 with Boston, his first season with the team. After retirement, he worked as a Red Sox broadcaster for 33 seasons and is one of the most beloved figures in team history. There's something about these boston teams where they have these broadcasters that just stay with them forever it's kind of like a heinzen type of thing and remy sort of similar to what we were talking about with bill free and he was born in the boston area started his career with the angels in the 70s and then joined the red sox as in 78 that's his best year as a pro he's it's his lone all-star appearance as we said 278 with 44 RBIs and 148 games stats that are certainly not everything, anything to write home about, but he was not only a part of that historic 1978 season, but he, you know, they called him the rem dog in Boston and he was just beloved Dennis Eckersley, who he did games with forever. He said, Red Sox nation has lost a beloved icon and I have lost a longtime friend, teammate, and broadcast partner. He'll be missed by all, and Fenway Park will never be the same again. So one of these guys who was a part of the team as a player, a broadcaster, and an ambassador for decades. You mentioned Rem Dogs for a while. He had hot dog stands in a few different places outside of Fenway and one in the airport that were called rem dogs uh it seems like most of them have closed by like 2018 i would be remiss and obviously you although i just got back from boston i will concede that you have much more history with boston and and you know can speak more intelligently to to this than me but to remy and his career and his importance we would be remiss if we do not mention that jerry remy was part of what has to be the greatest and funniest three minutes total of sports broadcasting history from Patriots day in 2007. Do you know where I'm going with this? I don't, I don't know what this is. I have to listen to this clip. It's from Patriots day in 2007. And for anybody who doesn't know Patriots day in Boston is uh, 
It's the day they run the Boston Marathon. The Red Sox also usually play at 11 a.m. It's like a citywide holiday. It, you know, that's also was unfortunately the day of the Boston bombing those years ago. There's a clip where a guy goes to catch a foul ball and you see like beer kick up. And then you just see somebody whip a piece of pizza at the guy and hit him in the shoulder. And first of all, it's hilarious because Remy, you know, it's the perfect accent for it. He's like, and then if you look at the clip, here comes a guy with a piece of pizza. <laughs> but it's the they're, they're laughing so hard. And then they see the clip of because you can see it clearly. The guy stand up and just whip a slice of pizza at the guy who caught the foul ball. And the guy's like, what do you what do you say? Honey, I'm going to the ball game. And if I see a guy there, I'm going to throw a piece of pizza at him. <laughs> but they, they are laughing so hard. I will send you the clip. Please check it out. Really, all you have to do is just search Red Sox pizza incident. And there's like a three and a half minute clip of all of them. So they show that and then they come back and they're doing like a WB Mason ad or whatever. And they're both just like crying, laughing because you can tell over the break. That's all they did was laugh about the pizza thing. <laughs> so. It's if you want to hear a hilariously called two guys having the most fun in the world in thick Boston accents talking about this, please check it out. And Dan, I will I will send you the link because it, you can't miss it. Please do. Yeah, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. And it, it it turns out that the guy who whipped the slide, the guy who caught the foul ball and was in the way had been like being a jerk to everybody the whole time. So he just whipped. And then they put up the thing that says the fan of the game. <laughs> He's a fan of the game until he's tossed out of here. <laughs> But anyway, we can move on. All right. Uh, next up, we have Tom Maddie, who was born in 1939 and passed away on November 2nd. An All-American quarterback at Ohio State, Maddie converted to running back after being drafted by the Baltimore Colts in 1961 and won a Super Bowl ring with the team in 1970. Maddie is also remembered for playing quarterback for the team in the 1965 playoffs after injuries sidelined Johnny Unitas and Unitas' backup. The wristband Maddie wore during that game is on display in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I am lucky and thankful enough to have with me for the fourth and final time uh, for the 2021 In Memoriam series, George Bozica from the Professional Football Researchers Association, the PFRA, of which I and a number of my Sports History Network colleagues are proud members. George, thank you so much for joining us one last time this year to talk about uh, this time to talk about Tom Matty. Sure. I've enjoyed these discussions. Thanks, Dan. Now, we've enjoyed having you very much. And thank you. So Tom Matty is the I think the only of the four. Well, the only of the three players, Marty Schottenheimer, not being a Hall of Famer. The other two players, Floyd Little and Mick Tinglehoff were members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the way that I tend to do these is that if a player, especially in football, baseball, or basketball, was a Hall of Famer, I tend to add them to the list sort of regardless. And then others, it's kind of based a little bit on their historical importance. Tom Maddy, I thought, was a, an interesting case for a couple of reasons. So maybe, George, why don't you tell us a little bit about Tom Maddy and your thoughts on him and what makes him an interesting player in NFL history? He, he really is. I, I mean, um, you know, again, uh, when we talked about one of the, the previous in memoriams, I, I mentioned that I came of age sort of in the 60s. So I, I have vivid memories of that 65 playoff with, you know, Tom Maddy. Uh, he actually 
I think of him as sort of being an Ohio guy, but actually he was born in Pittsburgh, but he, he grew up in East Cleveland. He went to uh, East Cleveland Shaw High School. And actually, this is sort of an interesting side note. East Cleveland Shaw High School and Shaw Stadium was actually used, this is a high school stadium. It's a, it's a little bit bigger than your normal high school stadium. It's not like uh, Paul Brown Tiger Stadium in Masson or now Tom Benson Field in Canton, but it, you know, it's, it's on the larger size. It was actually used in a, as an NFL stadium at one time for the then Cleveland Rams, who are now the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, but he attended East Cleveland Shaw High School. He then moved on to the Ohio State University with uh, Woody Hayes as his coach. He was a halfback slash quarterback for Woody. And then actually in 1960, he was the team MVP in all Big Ten. And I need to make sure people understand. I mean, I think everybody knows who Woody Hayes is, but Woody Hayes, three yards in a cloud of dust. Mm -hmm. Woody Hayes liked to run the ball, run the ball, and then run the ball some more. He famously said that when you pass the ball, three things can happen and two of them are bad. Yep. So he did not like to pass the ball. So when I say that Tom Maddy was a quarterback, he was not a prolific passing quarterback he was more of your running quarterback he was a very versatile player came you know to really be a a reward for the Colts because when the Colts actually drafted him it was interesting because Weeb Eubank who was their you know coach at the time said well we're going to finally have a Frank Gifford Paul Horning type of player and the reason that he mentioned that was Frank Gifford and Paul Horning were backs who could also you know, do a little bit of everything. They could, uh, you know, they could catch passes. They could run the ball. And in Horning's case, he was also a great place kicker. And both of them ended up in the Hall of Fame. I thought it was sort of interesting that Eubank would say that because he did have Lenny Moore at that time. Good point. And Lenny Lenny Moore was sort of in that same mold. I mean, Lenny was a great running back, but could run the ball great. But he also was a great catcher of the ball. But I thought it was interesting that he said that. And as you said, I think the most famous thing we remember Tom Maddy for, because it is, you know, at the Hall of Fame, is that in 1965, the Colts lost, first of all, their starting quarterback, the great John Unitas, and then Gary Quazzo, who was their backup. So they needed to play somebody at quarterback because they were in a playoff uh, since they, them, the Packers and them both finished 10-3-1 and won that year, and they had a playoff game, and they needed a quarterback, and their emergency quarterback was Tom Maddy. And since he had to learn the plays and it was difficult to do that in a short period of time, they made a wristband for him, which he wore. And that's what I remember. I remember vividly that game. And it was actually a very famous game because the Packers won 13 to 10 in that game. And it was really controversial. The Colts had an early lead of 10 to nothing. The Packers came back and they tied the game on a very controversial Don Chandler field goal that many people felt Chandler did not make. They felt that, it didn't get through. And actually after that, if you remember the old crossbars that they used to use and, and uh, back then, they actually raised the crossbars after that season. And many say it was because that, you know, that controversial field goal. Chandler later hit the game winner purely in overtime, but Colts fans will always remember that game as a game they thought was stolen from them. And oddly enough, and, and it isn't everywhere, but I found it through the research. He did quarterback one more game for them that year. They used to have a game called the Playoff Bowl, yep. which was between the two second place teams. And he led them to a 35 to 3 victory over Dallas in that game, was named the game MVP. But 
it's one of those things. I remember one year the Packers made it and, and Vince Lombardi was not impressed because, you know, he only believed that you played for number one, not for number two. So he thought it was sort of a waste of time to play in a playoff bowl. And I think that's why it sort of was finished. I remember seeing one one time and it was just, it really wasn't a great idea for the NFL. What the playoff bowl was, was as, as George said, it was a playoff game, quote unquote playoff game, kind of like they used to do this in the NCAA basketball they tournament did. too. They did. They did. And it was where the, the losing teams would play. I, I think, I don't know what the playoff ball might've actually been after the NFL championship game. I don't know or whenever it was, it was, you yeah. know, and it was done to benefit the NFL, the players pension yeah. fund. Yes, yes. Sort of like the all-star game in baseball was um, around the same time when they went to the second all-star game in baseball. It was, you know, they're looking at creative ways to bring in income to benefit the players pension fund. This was kind of the early days in all of these sports of the players labor movement, et cetera. I read Jerry Kramer's instant replay. Vince Lombardi called it a rinky dink game in a rinky dink yeah. town. Yep. And, yep. Yep. and yep. they also, uh, I saw somewhere one time that, it was the only game that Lombardi didn't take seriously. Yeah. It was yeah. the only game where he kind of went down and just, you know, didn't care what the players did, but Tom Maddie, yeah, quarterback them in that game, obviously quarterback them in the NFL title game. I was reading in my research about how the Colts, I believe are up 10 to nothing well into the second half. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they're on the sidelines saying, this is going to be the most, historic win we're going to go down in history with this win beating the now they weren't quite the lombardi packers that they would become in legend because the you know the late 60s were still to come but they'd still mm -hmm. won two titles you know lombardi was well on his way to becoming a legend and mm -hmm. had this colts team beaten them think of all the things that wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have had the three titles in a row. You wouldn't have, you know, no NFL team yet has won three NFL titles in a row. And so that, that's something that resonates even out to this day. And so it really is this moment in football history would have just been crazy. And who knows if they go on to do that and then win the NFL title game, you know, maybe Super Bowl three doesn't hurt as much. You know, there's all these things that maybe, maybe come about. And Tom Matty got a lot of play, in the media last year, because what was the, what was the team that had the, all the quarterbacks enter the COVID Denver. protocol? Was it Denver? Denver yeah, yeah. And they had to have a yeah, wide receiver right. whose name yeah. escapes me at the moment yeah. Yeah. start. And it was the same type of thing. Yeah, it was very much. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people revisited the whole Tom Maddie, uh, you know, story because of that, but you're right. It was a really pivotal game. And it, one of the interesting things about Maddie was too, is that he had a reputation for playing best in the biggest games because in the 68 NFL championship game, they beat the Browns, uh, much to my dismay, 34 to nothing. Mm -hmm. But he had he scored three touchdowns in that game and ran for 88 yards. And then, you know, because of obviously the great Jets victory and Joe Namath and everything else in Super Bowl three, I thought it was interesting that Maddie carried the ball 11 times for 116 yards and a 10.5 yard average in Super Bowl three. So, you know, I mean, he had a, a great game on the ground in that game, which sort of went sort of, you know, unnoticed because of, you know, the great upset. He did play really well in, you know, big games. A lot of people say that he probably would have been the MVP if the Colts yeah. had won the game. Now, if the yeah. Colts had won the game, they would have done a lot of things better. So maybe somebody else would have been the MVP. Right. Right. He um, that 10.5 yards per game is still the Super Bowl record uh, with a minimum of 10 carries. 
he has the longest yard from scrimmage run from scrimmage in uh, 58 yards. And that record stands, I think about another 15 years. I think it's Marcus Allen that breaks it in Super Bowl. I guess that would have been what Super Bowl 18, I want to say. So it, it lasts for about 15 years. He's also a part of one of the most famous plays in Super Bowl three that you may not even realize the Colts run a flea flicker very late in the game or not late in the game, late in the first half where Earl Morrill hands it to Tom Maddie. Maddie turns around, laterals it back to Earl Morrill. And there's a wide receiver named Jimmy Orr who's wide open in the end zone. Jimmy Orr, Jimmy Orr, who I think actually also passed away just uh, just this year or the last. Let me look up real quick and and verify. Yeah, died died late 2020, October 20th, uh, October of 2020. Jimmy Orr is wide open. Oral Morrill throws it to a different receiver and the ball's intercepted. And that's kind of cited as maybe if that play had gone the other way, the Colts would have been in a little bit of a, a different place. So a lot of interesting elements to the career of Tom Maddie nickname was garbage can, which maybe mm-hmm. was a reference to his stature, his physical stature. I would have to imagine. I don't know what else it would have been a reference to. And then the only other thing that I would say, and I found this, there's a really good, um, really good book that was written about the guy a while ago. Now it's about 15 years or so now called Johnny U, which is mm-hmm. as the name would suggest a, a biography of John Unitas by a, gentleman by the name of Tom Callahan mm-hmm. and they talk about how Maddie uh, from the day he signed his original contract was the nudge on the team, an overgrown kid. Nobody else had the nerve to twist grass in Shula's ear or sneak up behind Unitas and goose him. So yeah. that was maybe a little bit of insight into the personality of Tom Maddie. So, yeah, he was really well beloved by his teammates and it seemed like just a community at large. They said he was just a really gregarious person. And uh, I thought it was interesting because uh, one of the things that we we've done the last couple of years in PFRA is we've done a great uh, team series. Uh, and we did a, a book on the 66 Packers and the 58 Colts. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty well known that when the Colts moved to Indianapolis, you know, people like Johnny Unitas and, and Tom Maddie and a lot of others basically had wanted nothing to do with the Colts anymore because they said, you know, I think United famously said, I didn't play in Indianapolis. So, you know, a lot of these players really sort of turned their back because, you know, they felt that they played in Baltimore and they were the Baltimore Colts, not the Indianapolis Colts. I thought it was interesting after his career was open, actually from 96 to 2005, uh, Maddie was a radio announcer for the Ravens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually some of those former Colts are, part of the uh the ravens like uh i don't know if they call ring of honor ring of fame but some of them have actually been inducted in there so the the ravens really embraced those old colts players that didn't want anything to do with with the indianapolis colts when you know uh ursa you know moved them to uh to indianapolis so uh it's it's really interesting but and i think those are other things that you know tie them to the community i know one of the things about the colts and the community was is that there was a really strong bond between Baltimore and the Colts. I mean, it goes back to those, you know, 58, 59 championship years, but a really, really strong bond, you know, with community and, and players. So, uh, and Maddie was part of that. Yeah. Another one of those teams where 
the last of the stars are just, you know, they're, they're dying off. It's, yes. you know, similar to the Lombardi Packers, yeah. you know, yeah. in, in, you know, similar to, you know, the, the Yankees of the fifties or the Russell Celtics, you know, mm. the, the last of them are just kind of dying off. And I'm, you know, I'm obviously too young to remember any of those teams, but it's, there's a little bit of a sadness there when you realize that the last of these bygone eras and the Colts are not necessarily a dynasty, but these, these well-known and well-beloved teams are, are mm-hmm. you know, the last of them are just starting to go. And that's honestly a, a big reason why we do this every year on the podcast. So yeah, we were really fortunate when we did the 2006 uh, in 2016 and we, we published a book on the 66 Packers and, in our research, we were able to interview a lot of those 66 Packers. And also we interviewed some of the 58 Colts. That book came out two years later. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting to me how many of them that we interviewed passed away, you know, after we were able to do those interviews. I interviewed Zeke Bradkowski, who was a great backup quarterback for the uh, the Packers. And the and, holder on that field goal. Yes. And, and actually, the interesting thing was, is that not only were the uh, sort of a final aside, not only were the Colts playing their 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 emergency quarterback that day, but Bart Starr went down in that game early on and Zeke Bradkowski came in and quarterbacked the Packers for the rest of the game. But he was sort of their, their super, when I found this, when I researched him, he was, he was an amazing backup. I mean, there was a time when, I mean, he, he would come in and, and, you know, they, they would lose nothing because him and Starr were so close that Lombardi knew that if he had to put Zeke in, he was going to lose nothing because they were always together, always working together. And there was not a big drop off when Zeke would come in. He was just a, a super, super backup quarterback. Yeah, absolutely. We did this last year uh, for the first year of the podcast and we did Horning Robinson. No, I'm sorry. No disrespect to Dave Robinson. He's still with yeah. us. Horning yeah, Davis Mm-hmm. Wood and Adderley, so yeah, quite a yeah, few of those yeah, Packers yeah, have just passed, just yeah. passed away in recent yeah, years. Well, yeah. sadly, yes. Well, this was George. Thank you so much um, for for doing this. You you've all heard George's contributions sprinkled in throughout the last uh, the last couple of episodes uh, for the Immemorium 2021. Everybody, especially if you're a football fan, uh, strongly encourage you to check out the PFRA. It's a great organization. It's you know. Not not an expensive, uh, not an expensive proposition, you know, thirty five dollars if you're in the U.S. And just a great thing. It, it, like I said, it's worth it for me just for the um, just first of all, just for the um, some of the people I've met. Second of all, for the publication. And then obviously it, it's great. You get a nice discount to the to the annual meeting or the, the semi-annual every two year meeting, which is just a great way to meet other other football fans and other other sports history enthusiasts in general. So. George Bazika, thank you so much. This was great, even better than I expected, and I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Dan. I really enjoyed talking about these, uh, you know, greats that we lost this past year. Thank you. All right, why don't we move on to a legend of the NFL, and that is a great uh, New York Giant and Washington Redskin, Sam Huff, who was born in 1934 and died on November 13th. Perhaps the first great middle linebacker in NFL history, Huff starred for both the New York Giants and the Washington Redskins and won the 1956 NFL championship in his rookie year. Huff's exploits brought him widespread attention, including a 1960 CBS News special hosted by Walter Cronkite, The Violent World of Sam Huff. He was also the first NFL player to be featured on the cover of Time magazine. And as a giant, I'm sure that Andrew and I will have quite a bit to say about 
Sam Huff, but we are lucky enough to also have with us friend of the show and Sports History Network colleague, Darren Hayes, host of the Pigskin Dispatch. Darren, thanks so much for taking a few minutes for us tonight. Well, Dan and Andrew, it's uh, quite a pleasure to be here again. I I love how you guys uh, celebrate these lives of our fallen athletes uh, that just had some great careers and brought some great memories to so many. And it's uh, what a way to pay tribute to them. So thank you for letting me be a part of this again. Absolutely. And one of the big things that you did uh, kind of over the summer on the Pigskin Dispatch was you did... um, for every number, starting with uh, starting with one and all the way up through 99 and different episode on the top 10 players to wear each of those numbers. And Andrew and I, we guest hosted on quite a few of those. You guess, you know, guested with you. I, I remember doing, I think, 89 and 50, 53. Maybe we did. And we, we did a We did a bunch. 19. Definitely. I remember 19. Yeah, Dan, Dan, you were on one of the early ones, I believe. You're like uh, four or something. I you? think I did four with you, and then we did 64 because I remember I wanted to do that for Jerry Kramer, and Andrew wanted right. to do it because it was his number in football when he was in high school. But um, I would imagine that when you did number 70, Sam Huff must have been pretty high up there. Oh, most most definitely. You know, when you say he's one of the uh, original middle linebackers, I think he might have been the first middle linebacker in pro football. Because, uh, you know, Tom Landry, many people don't remember that. He was the defensive coordinator of the Giants back then. And uh, Vince Lombardi was the offensive coordinator. What a great coaching staff under Steve Owen the Giants had. Talk about coaching trees. Yeah, that's uh, tremendous. But, uh, you know, Landry had a tremendous idea. Almost everybody was playing a 5-2 defense, five defensive linemen, uh, two, two linebackers that were sort of spread out a little bit, almost mirroring what the offense was bringing out. And Landry had this great idea of putting in a 4-3, so it created the middle linebacker. And Huff was uh, – he, and he went to West Virginia. He grew up in West Virginia in the coal mining area. Went to uh, West Virginia University as a mountaineer, and he played guard, offensive guard, and he played defensive tackle. So he – the only way he knew how to play was having his hands in the dirt to start plays. So one of the things I, I read about him and I saw some interviews on him is he commented on how much, how great it was when he got to stand on two feet, because he said when he was in a three point stance, he'd look down at the dirt, maybe look at his opponents, you know, lower extremities and then fire off the ball, middle linebacker stand up. He could see everything. And it was great. He had, he had great vision for the game and, you know, just had a, a tremendous feel for the middle linebacker spot. And Landry really featured him in that, that four, three defense. And one of the original, the sort of the impetus behind really coming up with that four, three was at the time they needed to stop Jim Brown. It would have been the mid fifties when Howell took over from as the giants coach and Landry and Lombardi were there. And if you were going to get to the NFL championship game in the, from the East, you had to be able to get, get past the Cleveland Browns famously in 58, the giants had to, beat them twice in a row, uh, the last game of the regular season, and then in like a playoff game. And the quote I have here, this is a quote from Huff, and he says, Landry built the Ford 3 defense around me. It revolutionized defense and opened the door for all the variations of zones and man-to-man coverage, which are used in conjunction with it today. So he certainly thought the defense was created specifically for him. Darren talked about Landry but there's actually a Vince Lombardi plays an interesting role in the career of Sam Huff. Huff was small 
when he was drafted. I think he was, I was just looking, I think he was like 240 pounds or something like that, which was small, even for those days for a linebacker. And they didn't know if they could put him at offensive guard. I, I assume he played both ways in college. Cause most guys did at that point. And he, he and another player actually went to leave training camp and Lombardi chased him to the airport and talked them out of quitting. And that relationship remained through the years so much so that in 1969, when Lombardi gets the Washington job, Huff had retired and Lombardi talked him out of retirement. He talked him into coming back and playing one last season for the Washington Redskins as sort of a, a stabilizing force on this team that Lombardi had just taken over. Now, sadly, that becomes Lombardi's only season, too, but it's funny how he kind of bookends the, the Green Bay years in both New York and Washington with this special relationship with Lombardi. Yeah, it's a, that's a tremendous story. I forgot about that one. I, I did hear that one before. But the, the, the 4-3 defense, I mean, I guess we got to pay a little bit of homage to the guy, four guys up in front of him for at, when he was a giant. And it was one couple of years, I think he had Rosie Greer, Dick Moduleski, Andy Robustelli, and Jim Katkavich as the four in front of him. So, you know, talk about eating up blocks and letting a linebacker roam around. You know, that, that had to be a tremendous uh, gift for, for him and for Landry to have a defense like that. Yeah, he's an all-time great. Robustelli's an all-time great. Uh, Rosie Greer, although not in the Hall of Fame, is no slouch himself. And then they had uh, another great defensive player. And, you know, speaking of Lombardi, a future Packer as well. And Emlyn Tunnell, member of the all-century team, first black player elected to the Hall of Fame. So, Andrew, that defense was just insane in the 50s. You, you hear more about Gifford and, you know, Charlie Connolly and White Tittle later and only we last year we did one on Del Schaffner when he passed away, but well, the, yeah, that was more like the early '60s was was the Schaffner Tittle teams. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for for people who don't know, I mean, a couple of things: a the the defense chant was popularized at Yankee Stadium in the late '50s for the for those Giants teams, and for anybody who doesn't know, the '50s '56 to '63 Giants were kind of like the later year Broncos and then the bills teams and that they got to the NFL championship game. They won in 56 and in 58 and 59, they lost to the Colts. 58 was the greatest game ever played. And then they lost again to the Colts in 59. And then in 61 and 62, they lost to the Lombardi Packers and then lost in 63 to the bears. So they were in six championship games in eight years they lost five of them. They lost the last five of them, but they were a perennial, you know, championship contender most of those years. And that actually sort of Jim Lee Howell, Jim Lee Howell wasn't as interested in the job once he didn't have Tom Landry and uh, Vince Lombardi on his staff. So the job goes to Ali Sherman, who'd also been on those staffs. And he decides the team's starting to get old and that they can't quite get over the hump. So, they trade off Rosie Greer, Dick Modulewski, Cliff Livingston. And at this point, Huff goes to Wellington Mara and they assure him that he will not be traded. And then Ali Sherman is the one who trade, you know, is the spearheads trading Huff to Washington. And the quote is from Sam Huff is, as long as I live, I will never forgive Ali Sherman for trading me. And 
He then goes to the Redskins, plays a few more years, and pretty much associates the rest of his life with the Redskins as opposed to the Giants. I know he did the radio with the Giants for a little while, but that's one thing that's always kind of bothered me is that he, even though he played most of his career with the Giants, he never really got over how they treated him and traded him and basically only associated with the Redskins the rest of his life. Yeah, that's really interesting, too. Uh, there, there's some uh, interviews with Sonny Jurgensen because Jurgensen and him became pretty good buddies when, especially when he went to Washington. But Jurgensen has some quotes uh, of about Huff. He says, you know, he how he admired him when he was a giant and he had to play against him, and then he it really grew once he became a teammate of his, and they they became good friends. Jurgensen comments quite a bit of how. Uh, Huff was always his motor was was a high motor. He played every play like it was his last play. And actually, Huff himself in some quotes, I think in some, uh, I'm not sure if it was his autobiography or another book I was reading. He had uh, he said that that's why he didn't get hurt because he played so hard every every ga- game for 11 and a half years. He didn't get hurt of his 13 year career, and uh, that's quite a testament when you have other players opposing quarterbacks saying how hard you play and giving you some great uh, props. And those two guys were broadcasting partners for the Redskins for a long time. They were from 81 all the way to 2012, so over 30 years. I remember living in D.C. and having a flag football game or something and driving home with a friend of mine, and he had the game on in the radio, and I was like, what is this? He's like, oh, that's Huff and Jurgensen. That's just their shtick. They're just these two old grumps just kind of bantering. They've probably had a few drinks before the game and they're just, you know, but they were two guys. I mean, how, how many places on the radio, especially do you have two guys that are the two color guys on the radio for 30 years for the same franchise? And I think there was a story. I heard this um, when, with in an interview when Huff died and I don't remember which guy played which role in this story, but they wanted to get rid of one of them, either Huff or Jergensen. And that guy said, if you get rid of or the other guy said, if you get rid of him, I'm going to go too." So that was, you know, the management was able convinced to to keep them both even for a little while longer. The other thing that's interesting about Huff is in addition to his radio job, he also went to work for Marriott as an executive and he had a very successful career at Marriott and a lot of NFL teams when they traveled would stay in Marriott's in part because Sam Huff worked for them and there was this relationship. He would, his company would get the business and they knew they'd be treated well by Sam Huff's company. And even some players in their personal travel, a lot of times would stay at Marriott's because they had this relationship with Sam Huff. The other thing that's interesting is that he's sort of the first media star for the NFL. Yeah. He's, go ahead, Ange. I was just saying, I think that's another thing that I kind of roll my eyes these days when they talk about, oh, somebody playing in like, you'll hear people go like, oh, LeBron must want to play in New York for his like for endorsements. And you're like, what year do you think this is? But in the fifties, that was actually accurate. It was, you know, the Yankees obviously were the, the kings of the world and New York specifically, but the those 50s and early 60s giant teams, Gifford and Huff and a few of those other guys were legitimate, you know, Madison Avenue darlings at the time. 
more so Gifford because of the boyish good looks and all that. But Sam Huff, I think, enjoyed a profile at that time and place that he would not have gotten if he had played for the Detroit Lions. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think that, I mean, we talked earlier about the Cronkite's show on CBS, you know, the, the violent world of Sam Huff. I think that sort of maybe paved the way for some of the things that NFL films did like a decade later, uh, you know, when they, they mic players up, you know, because some of the things, I don't know if you've got a chance to watch on YouTube, some of those episodes of the violent world of Sam Huff. There's one I was watching a clip of, and he's telling a, a Bears receiver, you know, he, I guess he must have got elbowed in the bottom of the pile. And he said, you know, you elbow me one more time, I'm going to break your nose. You know? mm-hmm. And it just uh, brought that personification of a, a rough and tough middle linebacker that, you know, got carried on to even this day, you know. And the other thing I would say about that, if you want to, if you're going to watch just the thing that sticks out most in my mind of the violent world of Sam Huff is they show like the cutting edge technology of the recorder they put into his shoulder pads <laughs> at the time. I, but it literally, it's like the size of like a boom box. It's like cut a hole in his shoulder pad. And meanwhile, now you have like, there's a thousand cameras in the pylon. But then it was like cutting edge to, you know, that's the thing that's always stuck out at me is it's like, oh, we've been able to barely fit this phone in his in his shoulder pad. And it's like, yeah, I got, you know, we've come a long way is what I'm trying to say. And it's also it was groundbreaking. First of all, I mean, Walter Cronkite was America's anchor man at that point. This was not some fringe thing. This was something that the eyes of a nation were going to be on. And second of didn't all, they also, you- didn't Cronkite play him on the line during that game? What was that? Didn't Cronkite also, didn't they have him dress at linebacker next to Huff during the game? No, they certainly didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) But you can't watch, you can't watch a Grizzlies Nets game in the middle of February now without having somebody be wired up. And this is the first time they did it in any sport. So I think, you know, he he was a little bit of a dirty player at times. He, in in an NFL championship game against the Packers in the early sixties, he, bit Jim Taylor in the nose through his helmet. So not squeaky clean, but a guy successful in all walks of life as a player, broadcaster, and later as a hotel executive. And, you know, one of these guys, sort of another one of these prototypical linebackers of the 50s and 60s, prototypical middle linebackers, along with Butkus, along with Nitschke. In fact, I think Ray Nitschke only made two Pro Bowls in his whole career, and they've often said that one of the reasons why Nitschke only made two Pro Bowls was because he had Sam Huff and mm-hmm. Nick Butkus stealing all of the middle linebacker slots um, at during in the Pro Bowl all of those years. So a great player, Sam Huff, on a great, great Giants team that, as Andrew can attest, for a long time in the 60s and 70s was the one great memory of the Giants that a lot of fans had until Parcells and those guys came yes. along yourself in the shoes of what it must have been like to be a Giants fan back in the 60s and 70s when they were horrible every year and embarrassed <laughs> themselves and were non-competitive against their division rivals. I mean, I I certainly wouldn't want to live through that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's Sam Hoff, definitely somebody who's worth commemorating. Darren, thanks so much for joining us today on the Hello Old Sports podcast. We really appreciate your contributions. 
before you go, you may be the, you know, they talk about somebody being the hardest working man in show business. You may be the hardest working man on the sports history network. Cause you put out a new episode almost every day. And some of the topics are really, really, you know, in depth and not necessarily something that's just easy to kind of pop out in, in a few minutes. So why don't you tell us about some of the stuff that's going on on the show right now? Well, uh, thank you for, for those kind words. And thank you again for letting me be on here uh, with you guys again this year, but he, uh, We've got a couple of things going on on pigskindispatch.com and our Pigskin Dispatch podcast. We've talking about it, beginning of every week. We try to talk about some early pro football teams. Uh, you know, we're talking about everybody from the APFA and NFL to even uh, teams before that. Uh, we just did a series on the, uh, the football world series, which happened in 1902 and 1903. We had a couple episodes out recently and one team, uh, from my local area in, in Western Pennsylvania, Franklin, Pennsylvania had the best team in pro football in 1903. So that was kind of a, a pleasure to do. I think they were unscored upon and undefeated at pro football, 1903. So, uh, Franklin all-stars. Uh, we also we get to talk a little bit about scandals of football. We do that in the middle of the week. Uh, we t- like to talk a little bit about you know going through football day by day. What we do every single day, we have, you know, every single day of the year, we talk about the football history, uh, Hall of Famers, birthdays, and uh, try to commemorate some a little bit of football every day. And we're also expanding. Uh, we just recently uh, are launching uh, the Sports Jersey Dispatch. Uh, dot com and we'll be having some podcasts on that we're taking sort of our jersey idea you talked about earlier and expanding it into some other sports we're going to get into some baseball some hockey uh basketball maybe even get in some uh sports from across the pond even a little bit so we're excited about that and well, we've if got you, if you ever need uh, guests i think that andrew and i would certainly be up for helping well, out you, with that you guys are up near top of my list that's for sure <laughs> and and uh Oz Davis and I, we've uh, formed a production team where we are started an audio drama, Orville Mulligan Sports Raider, where we're going to bring sports history in another facet in an audio drama and uh, taking a, a fictitious newspaper man from the 1920s and putting him in some real historic events uh, from that era. So it's kind of exciting. We've got a lot of things coming up in 2022. Yes, you do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And then you also have this website, pigskindispatch.com. And I just discovered this. I know you've mentioned it on trailers on your show before, but I just discovered it myself the last time I was on your website. You have a comic. Yeah, that's something I always wanted to do when I was a kid. I loved comics. I still love comics. And uh, just tried to bring a little bit of humor to football. I don't know. It might have been poor humor. I don't know. But uh, we have some characters we brought in and sort of just br- try to bring a little bit of light to uh, football humor. And uh, so we have a little excerpt on that, too. Yeah, yeah I think I think it's kind of neat. I mean, it's comic strip humor, comic strip humor. It's, you know, it, it's cute. It's, you know, I, I get a kick out of it. It's honestly, it, it makes me chuckle more than most comic strips. So, and that's admittedly not a high bar, but yeah, no, I got a kick out of it. It was, are you, are know, you chuckling and say, what an idiot this guy is? Yeah, no, saying? I mean, I just think it's, you know, I mean, again, it's not, you know, it, it's not going to, you know, it's not George Carlin, but you know, it's, it's funny. I, you know, I get, I get a little kick out of it. I really, I'm not just saying that. I really, I really do oh, get well, kind of a little you. bit of a thank kick you. out of it. All right. Well, Darren, thanks so much for joining us. Talk a little Sam Huff. Give us a little bit of info about your various projects that we're really looking forward to in 2022 and thanks so much uh, for the second year in a row thanks so much for being part of our in memoriam special uh thank you gentlemen take care darren 
Okay, so um, thanks to Darren for joining us and talking about Sam Huff. Let's move on to another defensive legend from the 1960s and 70s too, I guess, which is Curly Culp, who was born in 1946 and died on November 27th. A Hall of Famer at defensive tackle, Culp joined the Kansas City Chiefs in 1968. In his second season, he was a key part of one of the greatest defenses of all time with the Super Bowl winning Chiefs. Culp was a six-time pro bowler and was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. This 1969 Chiefs defense is incredible. (laughs) It really is. Because you got Willie Lanier, who many consider to be one of the greatest middle linebackers of all time, who sort of in the NFL, you had Butkus and Nitschke and Sam Huff, who we just talked about. And then you had Lanier, who was one of the great, first of all, he was the first black star middle linebacker. And second of all, he was the anchor of this amazing defense. Buck Buchanan is a all-time great defensive tackle. You had, uh, I'll pull up this defense in a second. I think Johnny Robinson, who was a defensive back, is also in the Hall of Fame. Let me pull up this 69 Chiefs defense. that uh, And that, that team, they went to the Super Bowl in, 66 Culp was not in the league yet. And then they draft Culp and he adds his skills to this team. Yeah. So 69 Culp Hall of Famer, Buck Buchanan Hall of Famer. Those are your two defensive tackles. Bobby Bell at outside linebacker Hall of Famer. Willie Lanier, all time great at middle linebacker. And then you got Johnny Robinson at safety. Another guy, he, he just got in the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago, Johnny Robinson. So one, two, three, four, five Hall of Famers on that 69 Chiefs defense. And it doesn't always get talked about in this conversation of great all-time defenses, but they are. Yeah, and interestingly enough, the parallel to somebody we already talked about or you already talked about. I wasn't on this specific thing, but in that Super Bowl game against Mick Tinglehoff, the center of the Vikings, yep, he was put. Hagstrom uh, put him directly nose to nose with Tinglehoff, and the reason for that was he knew that that would force them to use guys to help Tinglehoff against Culp. So they had to add guy. You know, they had to double him just because of the size difference. And that freed up guys like Buchanan and Lanier, who you mentioned to really shut down that Vikings offense. And they, uh, you know, that Super Bowl four game sometimes gets overlooked. It's not as significant as the Super Bowl three game, but it's still, it was still the AFL against the NFL. And it was the last one. The merger was happening at the end of that season, but they were able to, you know, beat a really good Vikings team and start that, late 60s early 70s vikings on a path of losing super bowls but um yeah you're you're right and i don't know what it is maybe it's just because i think a lot of people tend to before like the 80s it seems like they only talk about multi-year teams you know you hear about outside of the 68 jets but it's like you hear about the 60s packers right into the 70s steelers and they'll talk about the raiders and they'll talk about the cowboys but not single year teams really the only single year team you hear talked about with so much reverence is the 85 bears nothing earlier than that really like kind of the 72 dolphins but you know what i mean i do and if you think about it in some ways they were you know they were two time afl champions had the Super Bowl started a year 
previously or a year later, I should say they would have been two-time championships. Now, like we said, Culp was not a member of that team. He was actually drafted out of Arizona state by the Denver Broncos. And he had been an all American in football and in wrestling. And they tried to switch him to offensive guard. Didn't work out. They traded him to the chiefs and he plays for the chiefs for several years, 69 NFL title game against the Raiders. He's got four tackles, two assists and sack only spends about six years in Kansas city. And then actually gets traded to the Houston Oilers, the bum Phillips late seventies, Houston Oilers. And that's sort of where he starts to garner some of these individual awards. Now the numbers are not official yet, but cause Saks, when did Saks started getting counted? Like 82, 82. They've been able to go back a lot of the ones they have complete games of and sort of reconstruct them, but they weren't official until 82. And that's what they did here in 75 with the Oilers. He's NFL Defensive Player of the Year, named by the Newspaper Enterprise Association, and he chips in 11 and a half sacks, which is a decent number for those days. And those those teams go to back to back led. Obviously, you think of it most mostly think about Earl Campbell, the fullback, great runner of the time they lose in both 78 and 79 to the Steelers in the AFC title game. He's an all pro first team, all pro once second team, all pro uh, one, two, three, four times. So just a damn good defensive tackle and a leader of some really good defenses in the 1970s. And was one of the men responsible for the really the advent of the three, four defense. He was sort of a prototypical three, four player as that was in its infancy and was, you know, even when he moved to Houston, he was able to convince bum Phillips that he had to, that they should play a three, four instead of a four, three. And then obviously throughout the seventies and the eighties, the three, four really gained a lot of, uh, prominence when you had teams like the Giants running it but you know he was at the forefront of that in the early 70s and he may not have had as much luck with the Chiefs trying to get them to run a 3-4 because Willie Lanier was such a great middle linebacker so maybe there was some of that sort of strategic dynamic at play that maybe he was a better fit in the in the Houston defense but a part of one of the grand and that 69 Chief team I think is sort of since they won because they won the same year they had their 50th anniversary 50th anniversary of the team. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, plus yeah. they win the Super Bowl. So there I think that there's maybe been some renewed attention paid to that 69 Chief team and that defense especially over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think for sure. All right, uh, I think it's Andrew's up to read one next and uh so something a little a little bit different here. Go ahead. Sure. Uh Lee Elder born in 1934 passed away on November 28th. The first black golfer to compete in the Masters, Elder won four PGA tournaments and participated in all four majors in his career. He was a member of the Champion American Ryder Cup team in 1979, the first African-American to qualify for the team. So obviously much of the Lee Elder story is about off the field or off the, you know, off the course type of things. He was the first black golfer invited to participate at the masters at Augusta national, which he did 
1975, he had won something called the Monsanto Open the previous year, which I guess sort of qualified him to get an invite. Not a great golfer, I wouldn't say. Um, misses the cut in his first Masters. I want to pull up. I think his his best finish at a major was something like 11th. He was good enough to be named to that one Ryder Cup team in 1979. Yeah. He, his best finish uh, in a major was tied for 11th at both the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship in different years. 16 wins as a professional golfer. He, he golfs on the Seniors Tour even after he um, leaves the PGA Tour. He golfs on the Senior PGA Tour for quite some time. So better known as a groundbreaker than as a great golfer you know especially in a sport that struggled to get with the times as much as golf did somebody who is certainly worth noting and you know kind of a guy who paved the wood paved the way for tiger woods and uh, some of the others that have come after that yeah and it should be pointed out he won the tournament that would qualify him for the masters in 74 the monsanto open it was not above the masters. And I guess they'd done that in the, done it in the past to tweak their rules or clarify the, clarify the understanding of the rules in finger quotes. If something like that were to happen, because for a very long time, the masters, I think it was whatever his name was, the head of the masters country, Joe something I'm sure was his name said something like, while I'm here, the golfers will be white and the caddies will be black just because he won an automatic qualifier did not mean he was going to be playing, but he gets there. The thing I wanted to highlight with Lee Elder was, and I'm not going to pretend I knew about this before this, but I read about this and it was, I guess had something to do with uh, Gary player was instrumental in setting this up that in 1971, Lee Elder played in a tournament with Gary player in South Africa at the height of apartheid. And a quote I have from the morning call says it was player, the Hall of Fame, Hall of Famer from South Africa made it happen by convincing then Prime Minister John Vorster, who the New York Times called a granite symbol of apartheid. I think he may have been the one that had Nelson Mandela thrown in prison, if I'm not wrong about that. Timing Um, sounds right. Timing sounds. So this was not a reformer that came much later to allow Elder to play in the South African Open and the South African PGA Championship player went into the prime minister's office asked if elders could play player said vorster paused for a long time stared at him and finally agreed said elder said he received counsel from the u.s state department that he simply couldn't go play in south africa without the other countries of africa being violently opposed elder made golf ambassador visits to other places in africa before setting foot in south africa to perform exhibitions it said uganda was the only country with grass on the greens And it said Elder had stipulated before the trip that he would only play if blacks were allowed to be spectators on the course with whites, which was unprecedented. His one request that wasn't granted was to visit Nelson Mandela in prison. So I guess he had gone over there with the understanding that, and this is forgive the language I have to use, but like that none of the apartheid rules would be in place and that he would in effect be treated like a visiting white player and the fans would be allowed to come see him play. And I guess there was also one additional thing. Several years later in 1986, he spoke out because the PGA governors had allowed several uh, PGA tour players to play at Sun City 
in a t- golf tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sun City was the sort of there was a very famous what was it? Uh, I think it was organized by Stevie Van Zant that we ain't gonna play Sun City thing. Yeah, that was during the the real divestment aspect of of South Africa, and they you know to get them to put economic and cultural pressure on them. Um, so I guess he had spoken out then because it was a much different circumstance than when he had gone in 1971. But I thought the South Africa aspect of it was interesting. Yeah, no, I, I didn't know that story. So that is very interesting. PGA was officially whites only until 1961, which is late. Um, even for it to be official. I mean, yeah. it surprised me for it to not like you. And I mean, I don't mean it flippantly, but like, Generally, by like the early 50s, they stopped writing that stuff down. Yeah. Just unofficial. Uh, let me let me take a look at his um, PGA had a Caucasian only rule until 1961. I assume that means official. This is from his ESPN. I want to see somebody take that very, very literally one time. Because there are people there are people in this world who are considered technically the people in this world who are Caucasian are from like the Caucasus Mountains and like. <laughs> Eastern Europe, like those people are correctly identified as Caucasian, just like those people should be. Sorry, go ahead. When, basketball might still be okay. The other <laughs> sports, not so much. Eastern European. Yeah. A couple other things that are worth noting for him. First of all, he didn't actually make it into the PGA until he was 40. So he, he played in his first Masters in 19, uh, what was the year? Was it 77? That he played where in his first masters? I think it was 74, wasn't it? It was, yeah, okay. Well, you're right, it was 74, so 75. So he was 41, 40, 41 years of age. He won the qualifying tournament in 74. In 74. He also he kind of got his start in golf by playing a round with Joe Lewis, and he had a uh, and I guess that like Lewis's golf trainer saw some potential in him and started to work with him, and then he. He knew Jackie Robinson. He had a close friendship with Hank Aaron, who we all we previously talked about, and also also passed away this year and uh, was also commemorated. He obviously later had a relationship with Tiger Woods. So somebody who kind of knew a lot of great athletes and athletes who were very important to civil rights during the course of his career, and he was honored even uh, until. This day, I think he was at the Masters just this year, as a matter of fact. He he had been in poor health and wore an oxygen tube beneath his nose when he appeared at the opening of the Masters in April. So, yeah, somebody who, who was a part of the golf scene up until the very end. All right. Why don't we move on? And I believe it is my turn to read one. And I'm going to tell us about Claude Humphrey who was born in 1944 and passed away on December 3rd, a hall of famer at defensive end. Humphrey was an eight time all pro and six time pro bowler for the Atlanta Falcons. He finished his career with three seasons as a Philadelphia Eagle recording 14 and a half sacks in 1980 and helping lead the team to super bowl 15. We talked about Humphrey a little bit when we did our Philly episode and we talked about 1980 in mm-hmm. Philly sports about how a lot of times these teams that make a final push to the Super Bowl will bring in a veteran on defense and Humphrey sort of filled that role for the Eagles in 80. 
Yep. Also in that Super Bowl, he got called for roughing passer, uh, roughing the quarterback on a hit on Jim Plunkett, and then was displeased with being called for that. So he picked up the penalty flag and threw it back at the referee, which <laughs> I would imagine would would have resulted in more flags. But yeah, he was primarily spent most of his career with the Falcons. That was when he had his all pro seasons. Uh, he was a first team all pro from 71 to 74. And then again in 77, 77. And I had never heard of this before, but is this the grits blitz? Grits blitz. The 1977 Falcons, the grits blitz. I did not know that. Nor did I. I didn't know much about these Falcons in the seventies, to be honest with you. I just knew they wore a lot of red. Yeah, but um, you know, probably has to be considered one of the best early Falcons, like pre, you know, when they started to get a little bit good in the eighties. I mean, even that seventy-seven team with the grit splits only went seven and seven. It's not like they were, uh, you know, a really really good team. But no, that was the year. But they also went seven and seven. Oh, okay, that's confusing. No, it's not. So yeah, no, I mean, even if you look at this defense, other than him. I don't I've never heard of really any of these guys, Robert Pennywell and Rick Bias and Jeff Merrow. One all pro is a cornerback by the name of Roland Lawrence, who I have to admit, I do not know anything about. So you can maybe understand why he wanted to get out of there. In fact, he temporarily temporarily retired before he got traded to Philly in the late 70s kind of maybe was kind of like a Barry Sanders type of thing where he just got sick of losing. Yeah. It looks like the only 70, what year did he leave? Uh, did he start with Philadelphia 79? He, he temporarily retired after four years of the 78 season and then they traded him in 79. Okay. Cause 78, 78 would have been the only year that they made the playoffs when, he and he was, was already retired. He retired after he, four games. So yeah, he, he, until he was with the Eagles, he had been done nothing, but nothing, but a lot of losing uh, down in Atlanta. But, you know, obviously was still one of those guys who sort of toiled away on bad teams and you didn't have the options. Then you have now where you can, you know, when your contract is up or you can just demand a trade ultimately kind of retired and forced his way to a trade. But, um, can't can't say it's a guy I knew a whole lot about before this. Just I think I'm, I think that's largely the product of the team and the time. And he's one who's really benefited from this retroactive sacks. 11 and a half, 10 and a half, 10, 13, 11, 12 and a half. 1976, he's got 14 and a half sacks. And then even at 36 years of age in 1980, that Eagles year when he's mostly just a pass rusher. So He's not even in there every down 15 and a half sacks for that Eagle team in 1980. That's pretty impressive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, what's the established record 22 and a half to have that many is, you know, you're, you're not quite at that level, but you're up there. He's credited with 130 career sacks sort of retroactively as they've gone back and looked, especially that's something that's really been done. I think even especially over the last couple of years. So not a guy I, I knew very much if anything about, but have had the opportunity both in this episode and in our Philly 1980 episode to learn a little bit more about him and glad I did. All right. Should we stay in, uh, stay in the NFL and, and move on to, uh, to our next list here, our next person here. Yeah, we should. And this is obviously a little bit of a different tenor. Yeah. And I'll be honest. I think this is the first one where it's a very young person that I can remember. Yeah, we had Kobe last year. Yeah, that I mean for this year. And then this is kind of, you know, 
This is the first one of these. Yeah. Demarius Thomas, 1980, born in 1987, died on December 9th. A four-time Pro Bowler, Thomas was a key contributor to the 2010s Broncos team led by Peyton Manning and tallied over 1,000 yards receiving in five consecutive seasons. He is the Broncos' all-time single-season leader in receiving yards with 1,619 in 2014. Sad story. I had thought that maybe this was, sadly, that this was some sort of a, and who knows, maybe it was related, that there was some sort of a a concussion issue here or, or something like that. Apparently, after he retired, he was a he was in a bad accident, and maybe some of the the trauma and some of those issues were sort of lingering from there. But the guy was what thirty three, so it's still a you know it's weird when a guy who you remember his whole career as an adult, you know, I, I it's not like I remember him from when I was a teenager. The guy played his whole career when I was you know in my twenties and thirties. To have a guy like that just kind of pass away is it's sad. Yeah, he was still knocking around on the Jets two years ago, 2019. You know, I was looking at the numbers and he was he was for a brief time there. He was one of the better, more more productive receivers in football. He was Peyton Manning's leading receiver on the Broncos every year. Peyton Manning was a Bronco. So that includes playing in two Super Bowls. I looked, he didn't have a big game. He actually had a more productive game in the Super Bowl. They got destroyed against Seattle than he did in the Super Bowl. They won against Carolina, but he was still, you know, the number one leading passer on a Super Bowl winning team. Even if that game itself, he didn't have a super, you know, have a high statistical line. Yeah. And his best year, his best playoff year, I should say, was probably that year that they went and got annihilated by the Seahawks. What was that? Was that have been the, the 14 season? I think that would have been the 13 season. I'm sorry. You're right would have been February, like the early 14 in terms of the year for the playoffs, like January, February. Yeah, Three playoff games, 28 receptions in three games. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. 28 receptions in three games for three touchdowns and 309 yards, 306 yards. So that that is really impressive. You're right. In 15, he doesn't do as much. I think he only has one catch in that that Super Bowl where they Mm -hmm. beat Seattle, but puts up some some crazy numbers. He's a four-time pro bowler. And I know that passing stats are inflated in this day and age, but 1430, 1430, 1619, 1304, 1083, a lot of good years. And he's like, you said, he's probably Manning's favorite target during those years that Peyton Manning's with the Broncos. Yeah. I think, I think he definitely was in terms of productivity, in terms of yards. I didn't look at, I looked more at the yards as opposed to straight reception numbers, but yeah, he was uh, obviously Manning after Manning left. He took a, his career, took a, a noticeable dip, but he was still on the Broncos until 18 and then, you know, bounced from Houston to the Patriots to the Jets before finally uh, ending uh, his career after the 2019 season. Actually born on Christmas Day, 1987. So he was only 33, hadn't even gotten to his 34th birthday when he passed away. So really just a, uh, you know, obviously a, a tragedy. And a, his most famous catch, his most memorable catch might have actually been the year before Manning got there in 2011 during the whole Tebow run, the improbable. He caught first play of overtime against the Steelers in the playoffs. He caught an 80 yard sort of over the middle touchdown pass from Tebow for one of those improbable, obviously kind of gets eclipsed by the fact that the, you know, they bring in Peyton Manning and they they have some really good teams for a few years, but 
at the time, those Tebow teams were Tebow team. I should say it was really only part of one season. That was a, an incredible run of a couple of games that those teams had. I forgot that was him who made that catch. I remember that game. Cause that was the late game Sunday. The giants had won earlier that day against Atlanta mm-hmm. wild card round. And then I went to a, a bar and watched that game and it was, you know, I remember going into that game. The big thing was that Ryan Clark from the Steelers couldn't play because the last time he'd gone to Denver, he'd gone into like organ failure because he's got he had. Uh, oh yeah, I remember this too. It's not not directly related to the story, but I, I remember that being the big thing in that game. And then you know, still thinking that, uh, Pittsburgh would win, and then Denver just like they did a lot that year, just kept finding ways to win games that you're like, they should not have won that game, but they did. And then obviously it came to a, a screeching halt the next week in, in new England. But um, yeah, and yeah, I remember watching that game against the Patriots and it was just like, it be, it was clear very early on. What was that? Jig was up. Yeah. All right. We've got only a couple more. And uh, why don't I talk a little bit again, something a little bit uh, different than what we usually talk about, but let's talk a little bit about Al Unser who was born in 1939 and passed away on December 9th, a member of auto racing's famed Unser family. Unser is one of four drivers to win the Indianapolis 500 four times. In 1987, he became the oldest driver to win the race, breaking a record previously held by his brother, Bobby. I should also note that Bobby Unser passed away earlier this year, uh, back in the summer. So it's uh, a good opportunity to sort of briefly discuss uh, Al Unser, but also the whole family. Absolutely. Um, the 87 one is the most interesting one because he went really without a car. He wasn't like scheduled to be racing at the time. And he was there for uh, the qualifying lead up. It's considered a reading here. It's an answer whose driving career was beginning to wind down, had dropped down to part time status a year earlier. He entered May of 1987 without a ride and without sponsorship money, which left him in the sidelines for the first week of practice. After another driver suffered a concussion in the practice crash, Unser was hired by Penske to fill the vacant seat, and he proceeded to win the race with a year-old chassis. car had originally been entered as a backup and had been sitting in a hotel lobby as like a display in Reading, Pennsylvania as a show car just weeks before that. So very improbable at his age and having, you know, gone in the preceding weeks to Indianapolis without really an expectation of being in the race. For the longest time, it was three guys who had won four Indy 500s, Al Unser, Rick Mears, and AJ Foyt. And then it was just, they were just joined this year by Helio Castroneves, who had won in 01, 02, and 09. And then won again this year in 21. So he'd gone 12 years without winning, which is kind of crazy and noteworthy in its own right. But you don't have to know much, if anything, about IndyCar racing to know the names Rick Mears and AJ Foyt and to have Al Unser be sort of the third part of that troika is it's very, very impressive. And it's a racing family. You know, he wins four. I think Bobby's got three and, uh, Bobby's yeah, he's got four. Bobby's got three and Al Unser Jr. The son has two. So they are IndyCar racing royalty. And I believe even his father was some sort of a racer. It's sort of like more of like a, if you want to call it an amateur level. So 
a racing family. He was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. His father and two uncles were also drivers. They competed in the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb, an annual road race held in Colorado. And uh, one of his uncles was the first of the family to lose his life to the sport. He crashed and died in 1929. His oldest brother, Jerry, uh, drove at the 1958 Indy 500. He also was later killed in a crash. Bobby was the first to win. And then his son, uh, Alan Sir Jr. also raced in the Indy 500 a couple of years after that. I don't know if there's anybody in sort of the next generation that that's been um that's been involved that that's actually raced at, at the Indy 500, but, um, I, I don't, I don't rule it out. So again, not necessarily, I know they definitely, uh, Robbie Unser, who's Bobby's son raced in a couple of Indy 500s in the late nineties. Um, that would be, um, Al, Al senior's nephew. And then there's Al Richard Unser, who is Al junior's son and would be Al's grandson he's not made it to the indy 500 yet but he may one day so one of the oldest or the oldest ever to win one talked in our 1986 episode about jack nicholas winning the masters the year before in 86 at the age of 46 this is sort of the auto racing equivalent of that so oldest ever breaking a record set by his brother and also tied with four other guys for the most ever victory so an impressive resume for Al Unser, even if you put aside the fact that he's sort of uh, one of the patriarchs of this great racing family. Oh, for sure. All right. Well, we've got just one more to discuss here. And uh, I think is I think it's your turn, right, Andrew? And this just happened recently, very recently. John Madden, born in 1936, died on December 28th. A Hall of Fame coach with the Oakland Raiders, Madden has the second highest winning percentage in NFL history and led the team to its first Super Bowl victory in the 1976 season. After retiring from coaching, he became one of the most beloved broadcasters in football history, broadcasting 11 Super Bowls for four different networks. He is also the namesake for one of the most successful video game franchises of all time. So many places that you can go with John Madden. And it's crazy because I've not had a chance to see it yet. Um, just with various, you know, Christmas responsibilities, but there was this documentary that aired on Fox during the, um, during the, the, the Christmas championship game, sort of commemorating the life of John Madden, which apparently is excellent. And I want to make sure I watch it Mm -hmm. before too long, but, there's just, you know, he kind of been in the news a little bit recently anyway. And then to have him pass away, I guess somewhat unexpectedly, you know, as unexpected as it can be for a man of that age, but at least unexpected to the public. Yeah. There's no like public mm-hmm. word out there that he was sick or, you know, on his last legs or anything like that. And Andrew and I have discussed, we think at some point we'll probably do a whole episode early this year on the, the life and legacy of John Madden. But, just so many places you can go. Yeah, I, and that's why I think we have to do it as its own episode. There's really, as in my head, I was thinking about it. There's really four different pillars. There's him as the coach. You know, as a Super Bowl winning coach with the Raiders, and uh, left sort of at the the height of his popularity and and success. Um, they would go on to win a couple more after he left, including you know moving to Los Angeles. And so there's there's that you know the coach of that team that. 
seventies Oakland Raiders. There's the the broadcasting career first with Summerall for all those years, and then you know Al Michaels and and all of that, and the games he called and the you know the innovations to broadcasting, the Telestrator, and not that he innovated it, but he really well not that he invented it, but he did innovate it, and you know what it meant to players of the eighties and nineties to have Madden doing the games. There's the video game, which is important, you know, the development of it. And it always had his name on it, even in later years when he probably didn't have very much to do with it, which is really important. And then there's just sort of the fourth bucket, which is like the cultural, you know, the the turducken and the Tanactin commercials and boom. Miller Light. Yeah, Little Giants and all of that. And the van. The Yeah, yeah, yeah. People who don't know football know who John Madden is. And that doesn't mean that's all I want to talk about, because I do want to talk about, you know, coaching those Raiders teams. And I want to talk about him doing games in the 80s. I have a list of games he called by like how many games he called for each team, which is kind of interesting. I saw somebody tweet out. I'd imagine that the Giants are probably pretty high up there doing CBS in the 80s. The Giants are number two. The Giants, he did, and again, I've, I have not verified this information, but the Giants are number two that he did 132 Giant games. I'm trying to think who would be one. Is it San Francisco? San Francisco is four with 89. The Giants and number one are way ahead of everybody else. I want to say that one and three have got to be Dallas and Washington. You're correct. And well... Dallas is probably first because I was thinking more eighties, but then the nineties on Fox was probably not much Redskins and a lot of Cowboys. One forty-two for the Cowboys, one thirty-two for the Giants, ninety-one for Washington, eighty-nine for San Francisco, and then eighty-six for Philadelphia. And then there's a decent drop off to Chicago, Green Bay, etc. A couple of it took me by surprise, and I mean the lower ones are all AFC teams. The Texans are not on here, so I'm assuming he never did a Texans game. No, because you figure late in his career, he was doing uh, yeah Monday night and Sunday night, which was always going to be marquee. Yep. The Browns being down at three was a little surprising, but not super surprising. The one that really surprised me was Buffalo only being three. And I know it was the AFC, but like they made four straight Super Bowls. You would have thought he would have done more than three Buffalo Bills games at some point in his career. So that well, surprised you- me a little bit. You got to figure in those days, it was very um, regimented. You would only do a game the way it always worked. And it's still kind of works this way, but it's gotten a little fuzzier. You know, one would have only had two opportunities to do Bill's games because one network has the AFC and one network has the NFC. And the way it works is if it's an interconference game, the away team brings their broadcast rights. But you got to figure with the Bills being good, they were probably on Monday night a bunch. So there was probably more of a a primetime aspect. So he might have only had, you know, two or even one game to choose from every year of theirs. But I still would have expected it to be more than three. Yeah, that's probably true. And I remember because, you know, and it really it bothers me. I don't know if it bothers me, but I wish of all the things that are out there on YouTube and on the Internet, it really is a shame that nobody's put up the videos of those old all Madden team specials when he would name his all Madden team as, you know, his all-star team for the year, because that was fun. I remember watching and getting excited to see guys from my team get named to the all Madden team. Yeah, it was. What was it? It would only he would only do guys that he saw that year. Correct. 
Although they might, he might have the last couple years, he might have gotten away from that a little bit. That makes, but I, 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 I remember like on Fox. I remember when it would usually be on like the Sunday before the Super Bowl, right? I think they would do the All Madden team that day. Yeah, and he stopped doing it. I think he stopped doing it right when Summerall retired. Maybe okay, because after Summerall retired, they never actually they were going to pair him with Joe Buck. It was going to be Buck and Madden, mm-hmm. but then Madden left Fox and went to ABC to do Monday Night Football with Al Michaels. Yeah. And then after that, Madden's contract with ABC expired and he went th- and that was when the contract switch, when all of a sudden the marquee primetime game every week became the NBC Sunday Night Football game. Madden left to go to NBC, mm-hmm. but then Michaels didn't leave originally. They were because Michaels was under contract. That's right. And Michaels was going to do Monday night football on ESPN. And yeah. they they worked out a deal. And there was that crazy thing where they let him out of his contract. And then as like a, a gesture, the NBC gave the rights to this Oswald, the rabbit character back to ABC. <laughs> you know, that wasn't the whole that wasn't the whole deal, but it's always been the joke that Al Michaels was traded to NBC for Oswald the Rabbit. It was some cartoon with a, you know, a, a murky legality of to who owned it, you know, 80 years ago. Um, and then Madden finished up doing the NBC, you know, with Al Michaels the last couple of years. So he only ever worked with Michaels after Summerall, but he worked with him on two different yep. networks. Yeah. And that was his opportunity to do more of good teams from the AFC and NFC. So I bet you like new England and Indy are probably higher up on that list because they were good in the two thousands. Yeah. New England is, let's see who the highest, uh, the highest AFC team is Denver at 26. Then Indianapolis, 21, new England, 20. So, and I bet the lion's share of that comes from, Oh, they weren't doing any Patriots or Colts games before before 2000. Yeah, there could have been a spare Patriot game. I mean, he did the Super Bowl, the the Packers Patriots Super Bowl. So there was some of it. But yeah, no, your your point is a fair one. Yeah, no, he like you said, and we will we'll have to do more on him. But there's just there's so many directions you can go with John Madden. I also think he was a guy who just liked first of all, he loved football. And he just likes sports. Uh, you know, I'm going through the, I think it's the 90, uh, when I'm going through, been going through the 90 Giants season on DVD. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of Summerall and Madden games. And one of them is right in the middle of the the pennant race. The, I think it was like the, the, the A or the, the playoffs, the A's and the Red Sox. I think it was in 90 in the ALCS. And all of a sudden Madden's just like, yeah, you know, the Red Sox, they're going to have to hit better with runners in scoring position if they want to move on. And it's like, you could tell the guy just liked sports. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think he maybe got caricatured a little bit too much. as just sort of like a big sandwich eating buffoon. And yeah. there was obviously some money in that with, with playing up on that image. But he was a, a smart, thoughtful guy. Yeah. And that's why probably if you're looking for like his best analysis, the 80s is probably the best time for that. There's a little bit of that, but it doesn't become overwhelming. A little later on when it was a cultural phenomenon, it was easy to sort of lean into that a little bit, maybe. Yeah. And I got a little tired sometimes of hearing about the turducken and that stuff. It was just like, all right, we get it. 
the other funny thing about him is that he gets associated, at least in my mind, for a guy whose whole career was with the Raiders. He gets associated with the NFC. Yeah. And particularly for me, the NFC East, because he's all those giant Redskin Eagle, you know, later Cowboy games. Every big giant game from 80s, other than maybe Super Bowl 25, well, other than Super Bowl 25, he basically did every big giant game from the mid 80s to the early 2000s. Yeah, you're probably right, because if the Giants are in the playoffs, it was always him and Summerall. Him and Summerall didn't do the 93 49er game, I wouldn't think. They probably did the Cowboys the next day. Do you think so? Probably, yeah. I don't know. I'm going to look that up real quick. Yeah, and maybe that's part of me being a little bit younger than you. To be honest, what I associate him with is the Cowboys and the Packers. Okay. Especially Brett Favre. And again, that's another one that became sort of a, a joke. And he did, he did talk about him too much later on in his career. But that was sort of, to me, the signature guy John Madden would be talking about is Brett Favre. Let me take a look here. Um, All right. Giants 44. No, it was Summerall and Madden. Oh, wow. Green Bay, Dallas. That. Green Bay, Dallas the next day was. Okay, so this was still CBS. Was that the last year of CBS? This was the last year of CBS, the 93 season. Jim Nance and Randy Cross did the Packers Cowboys game the next day. It is a very small number of giant playoff games from 1984 to 2000 that Madden and Summerall didn't do. And they Mm -hmm. did the two giant playoff games in 2000 when they beat Philly and then beat the Vikings. So yeah, there's just so much you can say about John Madden. I think he's kind of an appropriate guy to end this. You know, we need to talk more about his coaching career down the line, you know, career record of 130, 103, 32 and seven. That's uh that's pretty damn good. So yeah. Second all time. All right. So I think this was a good, um, good discussion. Good way to close out the year. We had a, uh, we had a good year. I think uh, in hello old sports, we, we did a lot of different things. We got some guests on for the first time. We had some authors, which is something we hope to do more of. We had some friends on to talk about teams and things that are noteworthy or important to them, which I think is also something that we hope to do more of. Um, Andrew had to miss it, unfortunately, but I got to interview Bobby Valentine. You know, we did, you know, everything from the 1890s Orioles to the thing very recently, you know, lists of, you know, best heavyweight or best sports moments through the 21st century. We kind of kind of ran the gamut this year. And I think it was a good year for our first full year of Hello Old Sports. Oh, absolutely. It was. It was, uh, like you said, our first full year because we had started what in like the fall of, of 2020. Yep. So I got a full round in and then came back to wrap up with the in memoriam. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm excited about some of the stuff we have planned for, for the coming year. And I want to thank Darren, George, Dana, Oz, and who was the fifth and Jeremy who for joining us at various times throughout these last two episodes to talk about individuals, uh, one individual or multiple individuals who meant a lot to them that passed away in 2021. You've heard their contributions sprinkled in throughout the last two episodes. And I think that's a good wrap uh, for 2021 until episodes in 2022. I am Dan Newman. 
And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. All right. So as uh, sometimes happens and as we discussed might happen very, very shortly. In fact, Andrew and I um, were wrapping up and I had heard my phone buzz and I had a text message from my wife. And as soon as I went over to the phone, she sent me a text and it said that Sam Jones had died. So Andrew and I are hopping on a little while later here to to talk about one last uh, honoree, uh, one last sports legend who passed away in the year 2021. And that's Sam Jones, who was born in 1933 and died on December 30th. Jones played 12 seasons with the Boston Celtics, winning 10 NBA championships. Jones was known for hitting clutch shots in the postseason, including a buzzer beater to win game four of the 1969 NBA finals in Jones final season in the league. Jones 10 NBA championships is second only to Bill Russell for most in NBA history. Sam Jones, kind of the forgotten legend of the Boston Celtics. Everybody talks about Russell and Koozie and you hear about Havlicek and Cowens and Bird. And, you know, later on, you hear about, you know, Paul Pierce and Garnett and Sam Jones was almost on that same level of legendary when you talk about great players and great Celtics, he's on the 25, 50 and 75 year NBA teams. The latter of which was just named this year. Some of those Celtics players, I think maybe get a little bit inflated because they were on a team that won so many championships. But in my opinion, Jones, a legit legend in the history of the NBA. It feels like this has been a tough last few years for a lot of the 60s dynasties. The 60s Packers lost plenty of guys in the last two years that we've been doing this. Now these 50s and 60s Celtics teams seem to have had a few drop off. This is the second we're doing of this year, correct? Of Or is it the third of Celtics who from that era who passed away? I don't know that we did any this year. I think we did Casey Jones and Tom no. Heinsohn last year. Okay, Jones, for some reason, I was thinking Jones was this year and Heitzen was last year, but okay, it was. Well, Casey Jones, actually, the other of the, they weren't actually related, but the other of the Jones brothers teams, the backcourt from the Celtics in the 1960s, he passed away around the same time last year. He passed away on Christmas Day, or maybe it was Christmas, either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day of 2020. So two years in a row, great Celtic guards named Jones that were longtime teammates passed away, uh, you know, very late in the year. Like I said, you don't necessarily hear about Sam Jones as much, but a, a great NBA player. He came to the league and came to the team the year after Bill Russell. Russell came in 56, 57 rookie year, rookie year for him, rookie year for Heinsohn. They won the championship. And then Jones, when he was drafted by the Celtics, was not happy to have been drafted by them because they had another Hall of Famer at, at, you know, quote unquote, shooting guard in Bill Sharman. And Jones was worried that he would never play. But he kind of played a little bit of the sixth man role for a little bit in the late 50s. And then when Sharman retired, Jones took over as the starting guard. And, you know, Kuzi retired shortly after that. And Casey Jones moved into that spot. So they were probably one of the first uh, superstar all black backcourts in the history of NBA, the NBA and both end up going to the hall of fame. But Sam Jones, I think, you know, no, no disrespect to Casey Jones, 
Sam Jones is the one who was really, really the good player. He was probably either the second or the third best player on those Celtic teams for most of the 60s behind Russell, probably. And then maybe behind either Kuzi or Havlicek at various points during the 60s in the dynasty run. But really just a really, really good shooting guard. And that's shown by the fact that he's been even all these years later. And we talked about a little bit when we went to we did our. NBA 75 team that's shown by the fact that he was, you know, he's continues to be named to these teams. It says here is the first African-American inducted into the North Carolina sports hall of fame. I saw that. So obviously you talked about the, you know, the all black backcourt in, in the Celtics and that being a little bit of a rarity back then and being a rarity for the Celtics forever. You know, he was, there was what, just the three of them that were on the eight straight, the teams that won eight straight, it was Russell and then him and then KC Jones, right? I think that's right. It would be, yeah, because most of those other guys, well, Heinsohn, I think. Well, no, Heinsohn might have left. Yeah, so it might have just been those three. I think you're right. I think it was just those three. Heinsohn oh. left at some point. I think 65 might have been Heinsohn's last year, and Havlicek didn't come till later. So he very well might have been. He um, is a famous sort of footnote to one of the most famous broadcast calls in basketball history. And that was when the famous uh, playoff game against the 76ers, when Havlicek stole the ball and it's Havlicek stole the ball over to Sam Jones. And that's who Havlicek sort of knocked the ball over to was Sam Jones. And Jones is the one who dribbles it out after that famous steal by Havlicek to win that game. And then he also in 69, in his very last year with the Celtics, uh, by this time, our back is gone. Russell is the player coach, Bill Russell. And late in the game, the Lakers are up one game four. Lakers win the first two in L.A. They lose game three in Boston and they're leading by one point, 88 to 87 late in the game. And the Celtics get a steal. Uh, M. Bryant, who was a sort of a journeyman player, who was playing for the Celtics, steals the ball. Celtics get the ball. They call timeout. And then Sam Jones, 36 years of age, hits a jumper from the top of the key to win the game. It rattles in and win the game. And probably without that shot, Lakers go up 3-1. They're going back to L.A. They probably close it out in game five in L.A. Most likely, they almost certainly win the series. And that would have been a championship for the Russell Baylor. We talked very at the beginning of this about the Russell Baylor, uh, about Elgin Baylor. Now he never won a title. This two or three years before Baylor retired would have been most likely were it not for this shot by Sam Jones. This would have been a championship for Elgin Baylor along with West and Chamberlain in the 69 season. And that's before Willis Reed the following year. That's before, you know, 71 and then 72 when Baylor retires before they make it to the finals. So really kind of changed the trajectories of some careers by hitting that shot. And the only other thing I would mention about Sam Jones and Andrew, I think will appreciate this. He was in the later years of his life. He was a devoted listener and a sometime caller to Mad Dog Unleashed on Sirius XM sports radio, um, Mad Dog Radio, because I remember about a year or so ago when Heinsohn passed away, Sam Jones called into the Mad Dog show 
but it was clear that he, he even said he, Russo, I think, even said he said he's not calling in. We didn't go for him like we didn't try and get him as a guest and call in the hotline, like the direct line. He just called in. He, yeah, he either called in or he, he might have called in a separate number, but he didn't wasn't asked to call in. And he just he said he's like, yeah, you know, I think I think Russo had talked to him before in previous years about things. But he's like, yeah, no, I'm I'm a, I'm a devoted listener. And in fact, when Jones died, when Sam Jones died this year, Russo played a clip of Jones talking about the Heinsohn and Auerbach and, and the teams that he had played on. So an important, important part of Celtics legacy of NBA history, a guy who was honored, who was, like I said, even this past year was a member of the NBA 75th anniversary team. So somebody who was definitely worth hopping back on to take a couple minutes and commemorate here. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, thank you all for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the memoriam special and appreciate you all giving us the chance to hop on and talk a little more about one last honoree, the great legendary 10 championship winner, Sam Jones. This podcast is part of the sports history network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.